Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The following program is presented by the Nerdy Show Podcast Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by A Comic Shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination, and with the generous support of listeners like you. For more Nerdy Show podcasts, community forums, and learn how you can support this and other Nerdy Show programming, visit nerdyshow.com. Hi, this is Claire from Yacht and Omni Reboot, and you are listening to Nerdy Show. Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom, from comics and video games to science and technology. If it's geeky, we've got it covered. Hi, I'm Cap. I'm John. And I'm Brian. And we are in a hotel room in Asheville, North Carolina, recording an episode on the road. Yes, this is our Moogfest episode. John and Brian and I have hit the road from, driven from Orlando all the way up to Asheville, North Carolina. Now, what is Moogfest? What is a Moog? If you're tuning in and, and you don't know these things, I'll allow us to elaborate. We'll start with Moog. Uh, Moog is an analog synthesizer instrument created by Bob Moog. Uh, it's a, more of a company than a particular thing. Brian, you taught uh, a class in synthesizers. Yes, I uh, teach at UCF, the University of Central Florida, electronic music. We taught synthesis. We taught digital and analog, and even into some of the newer computer uh, simulated synthesis stuff. But the highlight of my lecture was always talking about Bob Moog and Leon Theremin and Wendy Carlos and all of these early, early synthesists who pioneered what we have today and what we are now enjoying at this festival. And uh, so Moog Fest is a celebration of electronic music. It's been going on for several years now. And uh, it's in the name of Bob Moog. Here in Asheville is the actual Moog factory where they have been building Moog instruments for like about 10 years now. And I, I believe it was the home of Bob Moog for, for most of his professional career. I could be wrong about some aspect of that, but I think I'm relatively right. So this episode, we're going to be doing kind of a, a daily update every single day after we've done a, a day of shows. It's a five-day event. Uh, so we've got our work cut out for us, but this is, this is kind of a chill day this first day. I should mention this is Brian from Flame On, in case you're unfamiliar with his voice. And, uh, for all you longtime Flame On listeners, he just got out of the shower and he's only wearing his underwear. Oh yeah. It's absolutely true. Also, it's late at night, so we're a little bit delirious, maybe. I am. (laughs) Or partially deaf. That too, definitely. We're probably shouting we don't even know. (laughs) Uh, so, Moogfest was a music festival, electronic music festival, but this year it's upgraded to be a synthesis of science, arts, and technology, and uh, and expanded its days, you know, uh, by two. Should and, we have a drinking game about how many times we mention synth, synthesis, or synthesizers? Um, you can play along at home. Certainly. Yeah, you can play along at home, totally. We, we actually did uh, three episodes leading up to this, our Moogfest Bound series back in April, where we spoke with David X. Cohen, the executive producer and co-creator of Futurama, who's going to be speaking on Sunday. 
We spoke with Claire Evans of the band Yacht, who's also the editor-at-large of Omni Reboot, the online reboot of Omni Magazine, one of the biggest and brightest sci-fi magazines of all time. And uh, she's going to be doing a lecture. And uh, Neil Harbison, the world's first government-recognized cyborg. And uh, Mark Frauenfelder of Make Magazine, Boing Boing, and Wired all of whom are going to be talking at panels at this year's MoogFest. During the day, there are panels, and at night, there are the electronic performances that we have come to know and love from MoogFest. I've covered it two years prior, in 2010-2011. We'll link to where you can check that coverage out on this episode's page. Uh, a lot of the written and photo- uh, photographic coverage is on consequenceofsound.net, um, but we did mention it uh, in passing one year and then in a little bit more in depth uh, in the past on Nerdy Show. Uh, so we're here in a formal capacity. We're going to be reporting on Consequences Sound as well. Uh, but this is the Nerdy Show episode. So if you want to learn about all the crazy sci-tech things we've seen and done and all the cool music we've listened to, you are in the right place. Uh, any crazy stories we have from the road will also happen. Uh, so, like I said, this is the first day. We're already pretty tired. We uh, we toured the Moog Factory today, which is really cool. I've wondered that every year that we've uh, that I've that I've covered this. It just doesn't quite seem like a proper factory to me. It's more like an assembly line. Well, like there's basic electronic soldering stations, but to me, a factory high standards, John. A factory to me requires absolutely 100 percent heavy duty machinery that could easily kill people or cut them in two. And and the music goes dun 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 dun. Exactly. <laughs> Raymond Scott for the win. <laughs> So no, it's an old school factory. Think pre or around the Industrial Revolution in the sense that it is handcrafted. There is no automation, at least, that he showed us or told us about. Uh, The instruments are made with love from locally, as much as they can, sourced goods and materials. And pressed bunny rabbits into each one. Yes. No. But they're all they're they're analog synthesizers, so there's not they're not digital instruments. It's all real il- raw electronic sound modulated by knobs and keys, and in some cases like telephone switchboard style plugs. It's yeah. the it's the real deal. I mean, this is the synthesis that really kind of kicked off what we have now. I mean, patch bays, voltage uh, oscillators, uh, noise gates. All of this stuff predates all the bits and boops and. 8-bit and all the old school... The stuff we call old school now is really not that old. (laughs) This is old school synthesis. And I was really into it. I've been wanting to come up to see the Moog Factory for years. Uh, I was very impressed with the craftsmanship that I did get to see. Having been familiar with Moog instruments over the years, having played on a few myself, I expected that the craftsmanship would be pretty good. I didn't realize that everything was analog. I thought they had some... Uh, digital synthesis and some of the modules, but uh, be that as it may, everything like real wood, fine, like I don't know, metal. Like they had an aluminum case that they custom fine made. Metal. They're, Delicious. They're, they're 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 premium instruments. I yeah. mean, like every every musician who plays electronic uh, music generally, if they're say like you know not ridiculously wealthy already, they're like, oh man, I wish I could, I wish I could get a Moog because like they're like you know it's like buying a Buying a car in the olden days, you, it lasts forever and, and all that jazz. Like, they, I mean, I, I won't say they're the Stradivarius because I don't think they have quite that pedigree, but they're up there. And if you're like a horn player, they're like the Selmer of, of, of the analog world. A Strata, perhaps, that you can actually buy. Well, that's for sure. So, <laughs> so th- this, this factory was really cool because it, it's one building. They distribute globally from this one building, and it's like, you know, it smells like a shop inside. It's got, like, little 
uh, bins of screws and everything. There's people soldering everything, testing everything. It was really neat. Oscilloscopes. Yep, yep. yep. Uh, and uh, we we tried out a bunch of instruments in the uh, the gift shop, including one that's about to hit the market. That's very cool. The Thera Mini. Yeah, I said that right. Yeah, Thera, Thera Mini. Uh, Bob Moog uh, started his career peddling theremins door to door. So theremins have always been a big thing for for Moog, but. This theremini is something, it's crazy. They it, took the idea of the theremin and they kept pretty much all the innards, but they replaced the wooden case that they previously used with a plastic case. So it's a little probably cheaper from that perspective. But they also added a bunch of controls so that if you're playing it, you know you don't have to worry about not hitting the right notes. If you want to be in a certain key or a certain type of mode, you can set that and then with the controls of a theremin, which if you've never seen it, watch American Horror Story Season 3, the uh, the Coven one. Uh, Myrtle Snow, as we talked about on Flame On, famously played a theremin in one of the episodes. And you've heard a theremin, even if you don't know what it is. Yeah. It's yeah. a... Yeah, very much sort of like a, a, a woman singing a very old... Good Vibrations, Beach Boys. Yep, yep. Uh, uh, what's the old 50s movie? Uh, Leslie Nielsen. Man, all of them. Oh, Planet. <laughs> Forbidden it's, it's Planet. Tempest, thank you. Forbidden, Forbidden Planet. Planet. Yeah, yes. Very much featured in that. So they, they have those same controls, so you're like waving your arms around to kind of make... It, to, it's to an instrument voltages. you play in the air. You don't touch anything. Yeah. But again, with this model, you can do that and still get notes that are recognizable. And better yet, you can then take this thing and plug it into your USB port and actually use it to control your synths and your patches and everything in your computer, which for so many of us, this is a nice bridge between the very old sort of analog style and then the digital, you know, opportunities and patches and virtual instruments that we have to play it, with. It's a very cool thing. Like, Theremin's already a really cool instrument, and it's, it's becoming, uh, weirdly enough, it's having kind of a, a rebirth right now. So this is going to be kind of nuts because it, it's it's cheap and it does 300 more. 300 bucks, which you can only, I think the cheapest Theremin you can get is the kit to build it yourself, which they still sell you, and that's like three fifty. This thing's three hundred bucks out the door. I'm going to yeah. order one as soon as I can. <laughs> and it has full MIDI support too, right? Yes, yeah. USB uh, MIDI over USB. Yes. Yeah. So which the, means uh, it's highly moddable right yeah. out of the box. Like you know, you <laughs> that's true. Even, yeah, no, I mean it's just that's everything right yeah. there. So the, the factory was really really cool. Today there weren't a lot in the way of uh, panels. There was a lot of other stuff going on. There was the uh, conductor. Uh, it's like this app maker, I guess. I'm not really sure what what they were exactly, but it's this... Who ex- they are, why. Yeah, it's this experimental <laughs> thing that's going on throughout the entire festival. I put, Did they get grant money? I, I, put, I put a... Basically, you, you go to this this place where they've got this thing, this little kiosk set up, and uh, you... If you don't follow this, I don't blame you. You give them you give them your ID, and in turn, they give you an iPhone, which is synced to a piece of headgear you're wearing a brain communication interface or bci like if you've ever um if you've ever played that like the emotive headset the 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 jedi um mind the jedi mind game or Um, several other mind games yeah it's using a lot of like bizarre kids toys these days but this one uh it's it's mapping your your brain waves It's, it's giving you your level of concentration your level of meditation and then it's also using a gps in the phone which then in turn maps it to this app, which anybody can get. But this one's when you're when you actually sign up for it and you have the the headset on, it's actually reading you. And so it's using your brainwaves to generate 
music as you walk through this virtual landscape of Asheville. They not the actual buildings and so on, but they have the street maps in this like this Max Headroom Tron-like viewport with all this crate basically cyberspace, Asheville in cyberspace. You're watching you're watching this not augmented reality. What would you augmented go- virtuality? Augmented virtuality. Why? What is that? That is where you add real world elements into a virtual world. Right. So it's kind of the revert. Augmented reality is where you impose virtual elements over the real world, and this is where you take aspects of the real world and put it into a virtual one. Yeah. So it was a virtual world. It was a, a three dimensional landscape, but then it also we are getting pretty academic here right now. So it, it, yeah, bear with us. It, this is going to be both a, a, a an event report and a sci tech episode. I mean, a bunch it, of confusion. It's, it's going to be much like Mobfest, a synthesis of music, arts, and technology. Take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> so it was uh, it was really weird and. Um, and I heard I heard some cool noises. It kind of sounded like Silent Hill. It kind of sounded pretty sometimes. Uh, and then I, I I walked around for thirty minutes. We went to this place where they were showcasing. It was called the Modular Marketplace, where they're showcasing a bunch of handmade, somewhat DIY yeah. stuff. So they had the Doctor Bleep group, which does the Thingamaboop, and a couple other little handmade kit. Uh, and that wasn't a joke. That was the name of it. Yeah, and he's not being dismissive. <laughs> noi- noise makers or wave, wave noise. What a couple other, and I'll, I'll probably go back tomorrow or the next day, and we'll talk more about these. Different if you groups. want doodads to go, yeah, then yeah, lots of cool little gear uh, demonstrations. They had some old school synths, and of course, they had people blaring, you know, whatever they were doing up front on the stage, which kind of got. It was horrible. After a few minutes, literally horrible. Little, drove us out of the space. A little, little too much dubstep hanging out there. But uh, but so then I then I walked back. I gave him. I gave Conductor the, their headset back, and then I I looked at the map and I saw my little path. I went further north than anyone had today so far. And the cool thing is now when we walk back down that same path, we could potentially hear what you already did. Yeah, it's it's a it's a collaborative music experiment. So m- that my brain waves and the path I walked will sync up to this geo data and anyone who's operating the app will hear and experience that data and listen to music that was generated by my brainwaves or my brainwaves in collaboration with the brainwaves of others who'd walked similar paths. So the website's at conductorithink.com. Uh, but if you go to the Moogfest uh, website and you look up Conductor, Conductor with an A for the, uh, what is that, U? Um, and yeah. you, you'll be able to watch, walk around and check it out, but, but it's only I, I for iPhone. Yeah, and I don't know that it's actually going to be usable to anybody outside of the festival. I think it has it, a joystick mode. Oh, yeah? Okay. So it's possible that they could actually... That's right, because you were flying around or something. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, that was we'll link, a we'll link weird to thing. I don't know what the hell happened, but I wound up flying in the sky. Also, horrible, strange monsters come out on occasion, and, and, and I've seen it three times, and the birds will shit on you. Yeah. There's, there's uh, every now and then you'll see in these virtual buildings a giant man walks by. I think it's supposed <laughs> to be a giant rolling robot. I think its legs are actually like a a, a sh- tank. Yeah, basically tank tread. Freaky. Yeah. No, like you know, you're just wandering around like, oh, look at these buildings, whatever. This makes strange bleep loop music, and then you're like, oh fuck, what the hell's that? Yeah, John, John was freaking out like a crazy person. We hadn't we hadn't used the program yet, but John was wandering around. I'm a major supporter of augmented reality, and as a result, also this weird nonsense. (laughs) Um, So the the first performance we saw today was a guy named Nick Monaco. We checked it out for for but a moment. It was it was good. Uh, then we we went over and uh, we went to the Thomas Wolf Theater where Pet Shop Boys were going to play. And uh, when we saw a guy named C Powers, whatever kind of mediocre uh, mixing going on there. But Pet Shop Boys, wow. 
holy shit. Now, I didn't think for a second that, you know, I thought Pet Shop Boys, I, I, I like I like their music. This will hopefully be a fun show. Didn't have any major expectations, but Jesus Christ. It was, stuff was happening constantly. Yeah, my buddy uh, Milton, uh, who uh, over the years has kind of told me about some of the Pet Shop Boys concerts, uh, experiences he's had, he led me to believe that it would be quite a show. And they come out, and they're in these outrageous sort of outfits. Uh, well, after some video like production on a, on a scrim, so it looked very sort of like you know almost three D. Um, and they have these ridiculous outfits, and they play. Uh, I forgot what the first song was, but very right off the bat, you know you're in for a spectacle. And then they start dancing. Okay, so so they leave the stage. Dancers come out with what? What are those like? They, they were cow skulls. Okay, cow skulls dancing to the right of spring by Stravinsky. Uh-huh. I was like, okay, this is awesome because I love Rite of Spring. But then they lead into a song where they actually reference the Rite of Spring and the yeah, like a lot of the a lot of the stuff was from the new album and man, new album must be pretty good because I liked everything I heard. Yeah, no, I'm I'm gonna I as I'm a bad gay in this respect. <laughs> I, I like Pet Shop Boys when I hear it, but I never seek it out. I actually think we'll seek this album out just because it was it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and I I knew only a fraction of the, of what they played. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they were from a, either either most of it was new or they were going all over the catalog in places I didn't expect. Yeah, it to. and again, I'm not sure because I I need to be more familiar with their music than I was. But so the dancers were awesome. They continued to do their, do their thing. Dancers did costume changes. Pet Shop Boys yep. did costume changes. Laser light show. Pogo sticks. The beds. Do we talk about the it, beds? No, yeah, they, they did a they did a whole uh, song from one of their albums a couple years ago. Where they were they were strapped into vertical beds, and then there then and there were sheets covering them, and there were bodies of like acrobats being projected on them, precisely so that their heads were the heads of the pet shop boys. And it was ridiculous. I mean, they're doing ridiculous poses and everything. But they did was... a lot of really interesting stuff with projectors and and obviously dancer capture that was mm-hmm. them playing like. Uh, I remember another one like there were dancers and clocks and like glasses of their eyes. Yes. And, and they had like what looked like three D like poor polygon rendered like tops of themselves that would constantly be used. Like they had all sorts of stuff going on, and that wasn't even including the lasers. Yeah, and and, and disco ball hats. Oh my god, that the they, hats they were beam lights onto to just you know speckle the audience with disco glow. It was crazy. Yeah, I, I highly recommend if you even are passingly familiar with Pet Shop Boys, but you haven't seen yeah. them live. I believe this is like the start or part of a, t- a t- current tour. If they're coming through your town, doesn't even matter if you're not a fan. I mean, just go. It's going to be a good damn show. It's a fun concert. They play a lot of different up tempo and sort of down tempo stuff. But it, yeah, definitely lots of fun. And uh, and then we saw Flying Lotus do the show at the Orange Peel. That was uh, that was very unusual. Woo! He he performed behind a projector. Um, so another scrim sort of same idea, sort of Pet Shop Boys, but this was even more of a sort of a 3D scape. Yeah. He had a projector behind him and then he's playing kind of silhouetted in the middle and then there's a pro- like there was a almost it was not wasn't a holographic display because those are made of glass but uh but like Must some, some kind of, of some kind of projectory thing yeah. uh at the very front of the stage to create this bizarre layered 3D effect. At one point it was actually an awful lot like the Virtual Boy. Yes. <laughs> well, so this was I had never heard of this guy until uh, yesterday or today and just didn't know what to expect. Some of his videos, if you look them up on YouTube, they're interesting. They're a little out there. Uh, the music is interesting, uh, very trancey. 
Uh, this was very uh, loud. In fact, I think it was so loud he burned or blew out his monitors at one point. Like within five minutes. Yeah, and the the venue, which is the Orange Peel up here in Asheville, I it, you know it's a medium sized venue, standing room only, pretty much. Um, it was vibrating noticeably between the bass and the people moving. I mean, it, it was a cool experience for about ten minutes. And then I was out. <laughs> I went to the back and just hung out in the back and kind of appreciated it from afar. I will say that. So one of the other things impressed me. Sampled the Alien klaxon from the end of Alien uh, when they're, Sydney's about, uh, Sydney, uh, Ripley's about to blow up the ship. Sampled uh, or did like a remix of Imogen Heap, which was really cool. I love her. Yeah. And he was actually pretty funny as an entertainer, too. He yeah, he did, he did say some monologues that were pretty good. Uh, he also uh, sampled some Mortal Kombat sound effects as yep, well. Yep. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was a good time. Um, it was weird how absolutely awesome and cool everything was, but then like the actual music itself, just kind of like. Eh. And I think what he was performing tonight was was somewhat different from like what you'd expect on an, on an album. It was definitely well, one he was having this monitor problem, which I think he got fixed eventually, but it was hard to say. Uh, but man, <laughs> the. He was playing uh, we, to the beatbox crowd we, we, that likes all the bass. We didn't mention, I mean, like, and that's you know that's what he's about, sure, but like not exclusively what he's about. He's pretty diverse. Uh, but the man, the floor. We didn't talk about the floor. So I, I, I don't know what's beneath the orange peel, but I know that the hollow chamber, <laughs> that the the floor, which was made of wood, was moving like it was ba- like just buckling and mm-hmm. bowing like this whole like it was it was like being on water i was, was standing crazy. still the entire time but i looked like i was dancing <laughs> <laughs> so that was uh it, it was fun now we're it's 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 uh it's one thirty in the morning uh we're, we're back in the room we've got a full day tomorrow we we got like uh actual lectures and keynotes with like janelle Monet and neil harbison and the cyborg who i mentioned the earlier so we'll, we'll be talking about that momentarily Thus ends Moogfest Day 1. Bum, 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 bum. Welcome to Day 2. Hi, I'm Cap. I'm um, John. We don't need actually need to introduce ourselves because this will be one continuous podcast. But it, it's been a whole 24 hours since those words we just said to you. And that's, uh, that's something. It feels a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? I am so... I'm having so much fun that it's like... It was a brief moment ago that we were last here together. Yeah, but it's also, again, one thirty in the morning, one forty-six to be precise. Uh, and we've had many adventures because Thursday was the first full day of programming where we had uh, a full roster of uh, panels and such followed by a full night of music that is actually at this point still not over. We began the day with the keynote. It was uh, Professor Nick Bostrom, director of the Future of Humanity Institute and a professor at Oxford um, and major buzzkill. Oh my god, what a dreary way to start the day! Seriously, I don't want to be in the future anymore. This this man had the most negative outlook on the future that I've heard in a very long time. Existential crisis, right? That's uh, his like, whole shtick. Yeah. The world is going to end uh, when the super intelligence takes over... And destroys all puny humans. Yeah, Maybe. He, he actually, he didn't, he never used any kind of terminology to directly indicate this, but basically everything he was saying was more or less, if artificial intelligence happens, we're either going to get something really good, or more likely than not, it'll be so analytical and so full of bullshit that there can be no alternative but Cyberdyne systems. <laughs> 
even if it's just sole purpose is building paper clips. Yeah, that, that was, was his his weird ass analogy. So yeah, I was really looking forward to this guy because he has this whole interest in uploading brains and the universe is a simulation. Yeah, what's his background, John? Cryogenics, uploading brains, existential risks. It's just it pretty much just goes on like that. But it, all he talked about was existential risks. Yes. And what I love is the title of the presentation was uh, was it the future of creativity. In what way did his talk have anything to do with creativity and music, or, or at least creativity? And then I think it may have actually been like, that was what it was branded as, but then at the lecture it had the title Superintelligence and the Structure of the Future, which it also didn't quite do. No. So I think what he was doing was the typical professorial thing where you come with your set of slides and you just start winging it with your material, and he then lost track of time, so he could not ever bring it back around. What killed me, though, is there was at least a question, or maybe two, from the audience that he could have used to go full circle and tie back into <laughs> creativity and, and hope. Yeah, I had but the he same didn't thought. do it. Yeah. He just muddled on, and oh, it was bad. Uh, but he, it was, it was, uh, one, one funny part was that he, uh, he situated a, a Transcendence just came out, the film, the Tom Cruise film, not crap, the Johnny Depp film, which uh, which Hex actually wrote a review of recently. Uh, we'll link to it on this episode's page. And uh, he, he said what you do is you, you slice up a dead brain, not a living brain, not a living Johnny Depp. But you take a dead Johnny Depp and you take high-def pictures of, of tiny slices of the brain and run a computational structure to calculate how the mind works, to replicate via scanning these high-def pictures. And that seemed... That seemed very implausible to me, but also odd because technically we could, if 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 he's right about this, then we could we could do this to a dead person now, and in theory create a simulation of them in the future. But honestly, I, I'm not really sure. So basically, it's OCR for your neurons, and and that's exactly when I've read about up- uploading minds. Yeah, that is exactly how they did it. Now Kurtzfile, I think, has this whole thing where he wants to do it while they're still alive or in some kind of transition to not being alive. I like the idea of shifting over with a sort of synthetic biology kind of a thing, like, you know, nanomachines in the brain sort of slowly electronifying things and then making a shift into a permanent virtual state instead of just like, we're going to kill you. Well, yeah, I mean, you know? why, why, here's the, why would you dispose of the body? Like, why, why would you dispose of a, of a living body? Why wouldn't you just be duplicated at one point in time? Like, why not? presuming that it was possible and that winds up being the thing because ultimately it has to be physically possible which is once again why i prefer the idea of basically nanoteching your brain while you're alive anyway this guy was a total downer uh he's got a book coming out called super intelligence if that somehow interests you we'll link to it but uh uh, but he it'll would, probably be based on arbitrary statistics by uh you know randomly just polling i believe if you open up a dictionary he's filed under summer bummer so uh, immediately following him, and classic, was, classic <laughs> academic. What, what immediately following him was uh, was a panel with Janelle Monae. Uh, if you don't know, the electric lady. If if you don't know who Janelle Monae is, um, briefly, you've, you've you've most likely seen her. She's a very striking black woman, really cool hairdo, kind of like uh, Egon from Real Ghostbusters. Uh, wears suits. She hangs out with uh, Big Boy from Outcast in some videos and some songs. Uh, she's got a hit hit song, Tightrope. It's really good. She's an incredible person. And this was a panel uh, called The Electric Lady where uh, it was a discussion with both her and her uh, collaborators because what, what, I, what I actually didn't know was that Janelle Monae and all of her albums are actually concept 
records. They all actually have a, a continuous, not a continuous narrative necessarily, but they all take place within the same uh, location and, and same narrative structure, uh, well, same narrative landscape, I suppose, uh, of, a, of a metropolis, of a Fritz Lang style metropolis where the android is the new other, the new minority. And it's a, it's a really cool parallel between any outsider cultures in the, in the mainstream. It was an incredible talk. I, I wasn't really expecting that kind of like really, really in-depth, very optimistic, very almost inspirational. Oh yeah, they were super positive. It was her and her collaborators are Chuck Lightning and Nate Rocket Wonder. <laughs> Nate, they're so, all complete nerds <laughs> and generally and they just all wear sound they awesome. all wear tuxedos. And and the panel was moderated by Claire Evans from from Yacht and Omni Reboot, who we interviewed. That was really cool. She had some very insightful questions, and it was it was a fantastic talk. We're trying to we're trying to get through the day really quickly, but I I, I don't I mean uh, there's there's so much yeah we did so much today it, it's overwhelming. I actually while they went to the electric lady, I went over and saw Mark Fraunfelder. But unfortunately, they were happening at the same time. Yeah, well, and and thankfully they had many sessions during uh, of the make uh, make your own musical instrument talk where they had. Various people who have, in fact, either made their own instruments through either uh, found, you know, artifacts, uh, technology, you know, circuit bending, re uh, reusing other parts, or in the case of Jay Silver, uh, who does the uh, Makey Makey uh, project, he actually builds little circuits that let you tie into real world objects like fruit, like uh, <laughs> anything electroconductive, which surprisingly fruit is. It's not just potatoes anymore. Exactly. Potatoes and lemons, goodbye. And uh, make touch sensors with them. And there's some really awesome projects that people have used this makey-makey kit to, to make. There, hopefully tomorrow is going to be another talk specifically about this and maybe with some demos. So I'm very excited about that. They also had um, Tom, I'm sorry, Nicholas Collins. This guy is an old school academic Music, like John Cage, very, like, abstract, modern music stuff. So back mid-20th century when they were re-deciding what music could be, what right. it was. He's based out of that school, but what he's cool, he's done, as he's taken these, like I said, circuit bending, and he's inspired students all over the world to, like, just rip apart electronics and make their own sounds with it. Uh, and he's done crazy shit, like, turned a trombone into a controller for some crazy sort of synthesis project. And he had some really cool stuff too. So uh, you guys went to a later session, I think, right? Yeah, we caught, there was a, the make thing was done in two parts. And uh, John and I caught the later part. We just, it was just the tail end of the chiptune performance. Mark came on for but a moment. And then uh, Forrest Mims, the third, uh, who Mark talked about oh, great in, in our, um, in, in our interview with him uh, came on. And this guy, well, this guy is kind of a big deal because he, he he's a name he's a name that John even recognized, but from a from a very interesting. I, I place. have numerous ones of his books, and that's actually exactly what Fraunfelder had actually said was that if he talks to anyone about electronics, how did you get into it? Oh, well, I had this book from Radio Shack called "Getting Into Like" or you know, "Getting Started in Electronics" by Forrest and Mims. He's basically like I guess you'd say the father of many electronic electrician electrical engineers, like you know, in a way. He's, um, like Mr. he's like Mr. Wizard for electronics, Basically, but in book yeah. form. It, yeah. Yes. 
And, and like that's what's really crazy. Like this guy's. You, you know, can taking... still go to Radio Shack and buy his books. By yes. the way, yeah, and, cool. and Amazon as well. We'll link to them. But uh, you can actually take um, optical fibers, apparently, and scan random objects and turn them into music. Uh, hook it, it up to a Geiger counter and actually it, fly in an airplane and have you know cosmic rays producing these incredible tonal fluctuations. It, he um, basically uh, for for any circuit benders who were creating uh, like analog uh, Atari style sounds. He created the the basic set of um, like analog controls for how you would make those sounds. It's all from him, and and this new stuff he's doing. Like all of his his current work is all about transposing real objects into music, mostly doing using optic sensors. He's also really into trees right now. So he had this like core of like a, a hundred plus year old tree and was scanning the uh, the age lines. Uh, in in the middle, like with this optical thing, like and making all these sounds from it. He has a YouTube channel that we'll link to, uh, F Mims, where he's took every noonday sun for an entire year and transposed it I using think more than one. A, sort a, of a program, a program called Music Algorithms to digitize sounds. He converted the cosmic rays during a an airplane flight into a transatlantic airplane flight uh, into sound. Wow. He brought a Geiger counter on a plane with him to do this? Crazy. Yeah, he's a, he's a very, he's an old dude, and he's very, very cool. Well, while you guys were doing that, uh, and I know there's one more thing we got to come back to, uh, I was over, inter- not interviewing, but watching a talk by the uh, lead composer of Mother Mallard, which you probably never heard of because it's an old uh, analog uh Sort of rock band, but not rock per se. Very uh, early in Moog's sort of history, they had these certain bands that would work with Moog to popularize the instrument, but to make music with that instrument as well. Uh, David Borden was this guy who kind of led Mother Mallard uh, like the duck. And uh, he had a great talk. The problem was it was in the middle of the modular marketplace which is where all the vendors are. Yeah, that thing we talked about, you know, earlier in the episode. <laughs> so you had a real hard time paying attention because there's all this shiny tech around you. And people were talking. And he's an old guy. And he's got a microphone. But they didn't crank him up until, you know, about 20 minutes in. And he's playing music from his albums. And you can barely make that out. So, I mean, it was great from what I got. And I really think this guy's cool. And I like his music a lot. But it was kind of unfortunate that it, it, it was... It was an organizational hiccup for Moog Fest. Yeah. That, that was not the venue he should have been in. Oh, yeah. Uh, a- absolutely not. Uh, I actually want to back up with Janelle Monet a little bit. I feel like we, we, we bitched about the uh, the professor who really underwhelmed us, and we didn't talk enough about the inspirational shit that we saw with with her and the guys from Wonderland. John, what did you take away from the from the experience? I, it's, it's hard to even remember specifics because it was just so, like, constant... <laughs> just literally did not stop everything that they said was just impressive these are people who actually legitimately talk and believe in philosophy literature you know like the sciences their entire story revolves around a cyborg in the future i mean like that's it yeah, they were talking a lot about Shakespeare, about how Shakespeare added 2,000 words to the English language, so whoever controls language controls reality, and that's why they want to create this larger-than-life experience like for, to, like the, uh, to uplift people, to, to build a new mythology, a mythology for people of African-American descent. They, they were talking about Kurzweil a lot, um, which is kind of funny because when we interviewed Claire, 
who was moderating the panel, like she's she's not a big fan of his, but they were they were talking about him a lot, and they're they're really into him. Uh, they said there's a there's a version of Tightrope that has a verse inspired by Kurtzwell. It's not the one that's out. It's some it's some like earlier version. Uh, I I didn't really make out what exactly they were saying about it, but but like that's that's cool. That's what these guys are about. And Claire was actually asking some questions that pertain to her panel that hasn't yet happened. It's, we'll be talking about later in this episode. Uh, she asked them about um, what what music they would play for an alien race if they could just play one thing uh, to sort of you know in, interact with them. And the consensus was songs in the uh, songs in the key of life by Stevie Wonder. Interesting, because in the uh, Voyager. Didn't they put um, Bach? Yeah, I believe on that as as express purpose. Yeah, in case an alien race finds our space probe, what do we want them to hear? Bach. Well, I think the well, Stevie Wonder. I mean, they, they, they put there, there was an awful lot on the Golden Record, an awful lot. Yeah, yeah some did, of it's they, kind of scary, actually. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, I think they put Rite of Spring, actually. Yeah, they did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not the Pet Shop Boys version. Yeah. Um, so you guys also went to, I believe, uh, what's his name? The Android it, guy. Yes, uh, Cyborg. 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 Well, no, you mean, racist. No, no, no. no. Racist. Because he uses Android. Unlike everybody else in this damn convention that everyone has an, uh, 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 an iPhone, this and that. But this guy had Android apps. That's true. Uh, we, uh, Neil Harbison, who we interviewed, he's the uh, world's first government-recognized cyborg. Possibly the world's first cyborg. I, I have heard people call him both i've never heard him call himself the world's first but uh he had a really great presentation a lot of notes of the, his story that we heard in our earlier episode with him which i'll link to but he has some really cool insights some really cool stuff he was doing uh, he was talking about what um how how being blind to color and seeing everything in grayscale impacted him he showed a version of the tokyo subway system map which is completely unreadable because of the because of the lack of color it's just a big bunch of gray squiggles um, and how the the the, fra- the flags of uh, France, Italy, and Ireland all look the same, <laughs> which we all nice... sort of knew. But you know. yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of a nice homogenizing force to uh, see life in grayscale. So he actually he elaborated more on how his eyeborg works. The eyeborg is kind of like a like an anglerfish dangle in front of his head that scans well the colors in front of him, and it's connected to uh, the bone in the back of his neck and uh, and uses bone conduction to provide him with a range of sounds, which since two thousand and four has upgraded all the way to uh, three hundred and sixty microtones. It divided up into sets of thirty for each primary for each basic color. He can also see uh, all, ultraviolet infrared light what? as well. Um, so he, he's going beyond the human. Capacity. He and he also elaborated on some things we, we didn't think to ask, like how do you deter, determine the uh, the intensity of a, of a color? And it's all that's a, that's a volume based. I could have thing. sworn he said something about that. Though. I, I didn't recall. It's possible. I, uh, a lot to take in. Any the point is is that you know since you guys weren't here, it would be a very good idea to just listen to the episode because it was a lot of the same information there. We were very well prepared. When yeah, we went. Uh, he had some some cool some cool notes though. He he had a diagram where he showed what. If he wanted to, to go to a funeral and he wanted to have something that would be drab, a minor chord, for his, for his perception of color as sound, it would be a green jacket with uh, orange pants. So that, that's his funeral attire. A lot of what he does is based on his new perception of things. He had an MRI scan and, uh, and his, his brain has changed. His vi- visual and, uh, and audio uh, cortex work in tandem. Uh, he's, he's legitimately seeing the world in a completely different way. White people and black people, they're all orange to him. They're all nice. shades of orange. Nice. <laughs> they're all Oompa Yeah. <laughs> there's, so there, there's an iBorg app, like you mentioned. There's an iBorg app, and it's, I think it's still kind of in development, but uh, it's for Android. And you can actually uh, send colors to Neil so you can, really you can cool. hear them. 
We also went to some concerts. Yeah, yeah, we did. I really am so glad that you convinced me to not go to Kraftwerk and go see this guy, Calm Truce, <laughs> who, first of all, musically awesome. Very great, uh, sort of a 80s-ish uh, textures and sounds, but, you know, remixed in something a little more modern, a little more palatable. It, it's a... It's a, a, a sound from the 80s done in a way that is exclusive to this moment in time. Yeah, very much so. But the other thing I will say, being that I do like my men to be a bit more um, rugged and uh, bearded, of course, he's hot. Like, I, <laughs> I actually text Cap because we got separated. I'm like, you didn't tell me he was hot. So, so the whole time, I'm basically sitting there trying to take pictures of this man. And he's up behind this big, he's on this big dais behind this light-up thing that's sort of... Like a, hex- it's a light-up hexagon. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and smoke and mirrors and light strobes and everything. But I got a few shots of him, so I was very happy to see that. <laughs> now, I, Kraftwerk is playing three times. Once, once today, twice tomorrow. So we're going to see him. Yes. And I, I mean, I regret missing any Kraftwerk performance. Well, but I, yeah. I, I had seen them before. So, it was, I, so I, I haven't seen Comtrues, yeah. and I really like him. So I'm glad you went with me. I'm very glad we went. And then we got to see another pretty awesome concert, which I didn't think would be as amazing as it was. Yeah. Keith Emerson of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and The Nice, and other things... Oh my god. Yeah, okay, so uh Emerson Lake and Palmer. Perhaps you've heard of them. Perhaps your your mom and dad listen to them. <laughs> yes. Um yes. Uh, they're they're a prog rock group. And if that's not nerdy enough for you, here's why you should care. Emerson Lake and Palmer is the chief influence of Nobuo Uematsu when he was composing all of his Final Fantasy scores. I did not know that. So listen to Emerson Lake and Palmer, basically you're hearing the Juice that created every single Final Fantasy boss orchestration wow. ever. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, the other reason you should care is if you're into Moogs and Synthesis or whatever, he has a giant-ass <laughs> oh Moog God. set up behind him and worked it the entire concert. It, it was very awesome it to was, see that. It was not just a console. It was, a, it was, like, it was a full-blown like, telephone operator yeah. switcher. It was as tall as a person. It had all the cords, all the knobs, yeah. all that stuff. It, it, it towered over him because he's not a very tall person, but even still, and he was sitting. And he was sitting, but it <laughs> towered over. Even, but the the band was really great. Lucky Man, that's yeah. one of their big songs, and I I knew that one, and they played that. They the, played the hell out of it. They played all of all the big Emerson Lake and Palmer jams, it, including uh, I can't fucking remember the name of it, but it one like one of their most their most famous super long track. Oh my god! I, think it's I like, kept like, thinking. I want to say like Targus. Or some oh, kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, right, because they had a t-shirt of it. Yeah. Uh, Tardic. I, tar- I, I, can't, I can't remember the name of it. Was I'm, it I'm, I Survived the Tardic? <laughs> oh, my God, though. And it had an amazing drum uh, solo in the middle that I... And even, I think, the guys on stage were kind of like, really, dude? You're still going? What the hell? But seriously, <laughs> this song never ends. And it's good. It's, a, it's like a typical jam band improv thing. But, my God, it just keeps going. Yeah, it was great. We had a good time. And then uh, Deacon. Dan Deacon. Dan Deacon. Yeah. I, uh, I'm i sad I didn't get to hear more of him. I went through a sound check before I left. And you went to a drag show. I did go to a drag show. A friend of mine was performing. I had to see her perform because I never have seen her perform in drag. But be as it may, how was Dan Deacon? Dan Deacon was great. Uh, I actually talked with him after the show. Um, and turns out we've all we've both been to the same Moog Fest. I, I, we've... 
I thought he'd been there every year, but actually we both missed the same ones. Oh, okay. Uh, so, but but we we got most of them. We're all, we're on the same team. He's he's a dude who is a very nerdy person, a very nerdy musician, but abstract, uh, like kind of insane carnival carnival music is not the right word, but. Uh, like he he has all these this this table of all these pedals and modulators and everything, and he'll make his voice into this like like squeaky high pitched like Mickey Mouse voice while playing these like intense beat loops, and you have this dance party. But also he creates this audio audience experience because he's very interactive with people, and uh, he'll like do things like he he'll split the audience in half, and he'll be like, uh, "You guys dance this one way," and then I remember my side was, uh, "You guys dance like if Game of Thrones was still good," and <laughs> and everybody yeah, the whole audience gasped. <laughs> And uh, then he'll be like, "Okay, and you and you, you're dancing in the aisle in between the two of them, but but each of you dictates all the moves that your side does." And then like he does this thing. I've seen him do this thing before, where he's like, "All right, so you get you two people, you're gonna form a bridge. You're gonna hold hands. You're gonna form a bridge, and then two people are gonna go through you guys and form another bridge, and you're gonna go outside the venue and around, and it's gonna keep happening until there's no one in this room but just me playing to myself. And then I'm gonna come through, and then we're gonna break it down. So I saw him do this in Orlando once. Out, he, he had a thing, a thing, a tube of people piping outside of the social in this long string down the street, and then back into the social. It was insane." This time, he had them go up a flight of stairs, up to a balcony, down the flight of stairs, back the other side, and inside and around. Now, not everybody emptied out of the building. There were too many people. Right. But this still happened. Wow. That's like, I, I mean, I oh, he's crazy. <laughs> I also like, he has an app. Yes. Also for both iPhone and Android. And did he, did he use it? He did not use it. Oh, I think he was okay. nervous about the festival setting, probably. Okay. But this this app, actually, he, he, he plays a, a tonal cue. And uh, and it syncs. You you tap. I'm I'm at a show in the app, and it, it syncs to the the app. And he takes command of your screen and your flash on your iPhone, and turns everybody's iPhones into basically super advanced rave sticks. Like glow, they're not not glow sticks, but like like flashing color panels, yeah. blinking lights that plays in tandem with the music. That's crazy. Yeah. awesome. I really 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 would love to see that. Uh, immediately followed by Yacht, fronted by Claire Evans. And uh, it was it was a phenomenal performance. I think I got some great pictures. I haven't reviewed them yet, but I think they turned out really good. Here's the thing with, with me and Yacht. I was aware of Yacht. Then when we found out who was going to be at Moogfest and I was reading over what was to be expected, I saw that Claire from Yacht was, oh, wow, she's she's doing she's part of the Omni. Okay, that's crazy. I heard they'd come back. I didn't realize that was her. And then, like, oh, okay, well, uh, I'll, you know, she sounds cool. I'll get an interview with her. So then I scheduled the interview. I started listening to Yacht, and I, and I enjoyed them a lot. And I thought, man, they sound like early talking heads, kind of. I, I wonder if they perform kind of like that. And uh, they do, but even better because Claire isn't, uh, I mean, you know, David Byrne, very active on stage, really cool stage presence. I, I love seeing him perform, but you know, he's, he's a little, uh, a little off, a little he's, 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 he's quirky. He, yeah, he's, he's very quirky. He's, he's got his own, his own brain stuff going on. Right. Uh, but then like say bassist from talking heads, Tina Weymouth, very energetic, very emotional, and everything. She's kind of like, Claire's kind of like a mashup of the two. So she's just like energetic, getting in the crowd with people, like touching people's heads, like poking people's fingers, like, Dancing all around, mo- singing and moving constantly. As wow. was Jana, her um, uh, her co-conspirator, the guy who who started the band, and then she joined the band later. Uh, they were doing all kinds of stuff. It was great, super energetic, great performance. I think we've talked too long for today, so we're gonna have to sign off. But because uh, there's there's still more episodes, there's still there's man, there's still three more days. Um, it's a journey, guys. You're you're here for the journey. It's two in the morning. All right, so we're signing off. I think uh, anything, anybody, any closing statements? I'm excited about tomorrow. Giorgio Moroder. 
Georgia Marauder, Craftwork. Uh, yeah. I'm going to learn more about processing than I ever knew before, and I'm very excited. Yeah, more on that in a moment. Oh, hey, it is day three now. 1 a.m., better than last time. Uh, it's been quite a day. I think we're all starting to really feel these these late nights. It, it started off, well, with a, with a much-improved keynote. I only caught the tail end of it. John, you... Uh, you liked it so much you bought the book afterwards. Yeah, the uh, this guy actually runs an organization that works with like countries, NGOs. His well, name is uh, Jerome C. Glenn. It's called the Millennium Project, right? Or as he said, though, there's a lot of them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it, the Millennium Projects, but but not the yeah. mo- but not the but Millennium um, Group sh- that Frank, Frank Black right. works for to prevent the apocalypse. And right. Lock from loss. Yeah. But so that's kind of the mess about it. Those like their whole entire purpose is to literally work towards a better future, to identify current existing problems, to identify future technologies, try to get them to exist, try to you know work with people to solve the problems in the now, um, and basically rally humanity around a better future where you know we aren't all getting fucked, basically, and where the uh, super intelligence doesn't kill us all. Yes, exactly, okay, but cool. but with a nicer edge of positivism, nice. as opposed to the other guy that was all like, "God damn it!" Yeah, no, it was. I, I just came out at the very end and was just I was extremely enthusiastic about everything I heard. Like this guy, it, it, his, it sounds like his organization is is deeply embedded in the in the global community, looking to actually improve human civilization, uh, and like save us from ourselves if need be, and so on and so forth. Uh, they identified a lot of like. A lot of problems, a lot of successes that humanity is like, you know, doing, you know, is on the right path. There's just enough danger for us to be concerned. and Yeah. And, and he was also much better at actually speaking <laughs> right. than the other one. There wasn't that, like, burdensome academia. It was really, to me, a whole lot more like watching Bruce Sterling. He was very much so down to earth. He understood what he was doing. He also had a message, of course, which was essentially musicians, entertainers, we need more information about the future out there and less about, you know, mindless nonsense songs about nothing. It, like, it's the only way to really get in contact with the bulk of humanity is to do it through music. He was here to say to creatives, the the key, the easiest path for us to improve the world is if you guys talk about it because people listen to you and you, and you do it in creative ways. Right, I mean, and that's, of course, the, the hard reality of it all. So we'll link to where you can pick up that book. Uh, and immediately following him <laughs> was was a panel with Giorgio Moroder. Today was the day of Giorgio Moroder, basically. If you're not familiar with him, chances are you are unknowingly familiar with him. Uh, he's perhaps best known currently because... Danger Zone! Well, yeah, he's, he's written... He, he wrote Highway to the Danger Zone, Take My Breath Away, Call Me, the scores to uh, uh, tons of amazing films, Scarface, Cat People... Neverending um, Story. Neverending Story. Yeah, he's... He's he gets pro- around. He might and be, those he, are the things that normal people would know him for. Uh, and of course, like 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 uh, he kind of is like one of the godfathers of disco music. Yeah. Uh, Donna Summer, like her entire career is thanks to Giorgio Moroder. He invented Four on the Floor, which is the, the house beat. Yeah, and it was especially clear tonight. We'll get to this later, but when we heard him perform all of them back to back, yeah, it was nonstop four not on the floor, stop. not not a pause. Nope. <laughs> but so this guy is amazing, and I admit I'm a fan of music, electronic music. I used to teach electronic music, and I honestly did not know the extent to which this man did uh, all the all the work he did. But all I do know him from is Daft Punk's 
Giorgio in the song. Yeah, uh, uh, Giorgio by Marauder, yeah. which is basically like an, it has some music in it, but essentially it's it's an autobiographical interview thing with him. Yeah, like and, how and, he got started. Yeah. And it's a great song. And now that I know more about him, it's a lot more interesting to me. But you hear some of his early works, and I forgot, like e equals MC squared. And from here to eternity, yeah. like go listen to those tracks, and you will see exactly where Daft Punk came from. Like, if you did not know better, you would think it's a Daft Punk track. <laughs> Down to the four on the floor beat and the vocoder, and he—I mean, just the whole thing. So it was a great, great talk. Uh, he was funny. He was very nonchalant, matter of fact about everything. Like nothing was that exciting, but yet nothing was so special. He didn't talk about it very plainly. Which is always nice, you know, he didn't seem to have a huge, huge ego. Yeah, would... And as you would expect, though, from, like, you know, just having people basically constantly talking about your stuff, like, what are you going to do? You know, oh yeah, we're going to listen to this track, and he just sort of goes, oh, God, do we have to? Like, whatever. <laughs> uh, his old stuff, he's like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Giorgio Moroder is the cool disco grandpa from Italy that you never knew you had. And it, it was really exciting, especially at his live performance later tonight, to see, like, to see firsthand, like, the, the appreciation. Like, because he, you know, he had his career, he was big, he was one of the biggest producers, and then his styles, as he kept progressing, eventually, like, he couldn't keep up with it anymore. He, he fell out of favor, and, like, and he was in relative obscurity until he was, like, rediscovered, and, and so now, like, there's people our age and younger who are into him, and he is, like, Getting his due, he was on stage in front of a ton of people. And everybody I saw, old, young, whatever, were dancing to this great music. Because a lot of it they knew, and the stuff they didn't, they still really liked. Because it basically had that same disco beat. <laughs> so here's some cool stuff we learned from the panel. Uh, for starters, he just he, he was he didn't, didn't disclose any information, but he just got an offer from a very big R&B group to do something in the style of his older hit, Get on the Funk Train. Uh, so that's that's like some some, some news. It's not a, it's not a rumor, but it's also not there's no information yeah. there. But but it's something to it's keep an eye out for. Uh, he has he has a new track that just came out. Um, a remix of of a Coldplay song, a new Coldplay song. He performed that live for the first time tonight. His album E equals MC squared was the first live to digital recording for an album ever. Yeah, like as far as he knows, like he was the first one to do an entire album uh, digitally. He had to rent the equipment from a university. At like what ten thousand a day or yeah. something? Yeah, in I mean, old timey money. Yeah, so that was a lot more. He, he's known for doing lots of work with a vocoder, the thing that makes your voice sound like a robot. His first one came from Sennheiser. They actually gave him his first vocoder in the early nineteen seventies. Weirdly enough, the uh, the panel was moderated by a guy. I didn't think he was doing a great job. No. Um, but then at, at the one moment towards the end, he really came into his own. He never said who he was, and it, it was he actually wrote a history book on the vocoder. Which, if you didn't know, actually was used during World War II by the English to like modulate the voices of their, uh, their people reporting different in intelligence and you know all kinds of army stuff. And uh, Dave Tompkins is his name. And I was so interested in the topic, I went and bought the book like while we're sitting there on the <laughs> topic. So uh, at some point I may have a book review. But uh, cool. I, he was a really cool guy, and now I want to know a lot more about him. So. Uh, more... We'll find out later that he was actually quite important, and he just should have known <laughs> yeah, from the start. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, more Giorgio Moroder gems. When, he, when David Bowie recorded the vocals for Cat People, they went to his house in, uh, in Sweden. 
he uh, he he said, "Oh, I'll, I'll record it at 10 a.m. in the morning." Very unusual for a performer. Uh, he did it in th- about three takes in 30 minutes, and uh, so so that I don't know if that's ever been mentioned anywhere, but he it was he was very efficient, very professional, and uh, everyone had a good time. Moroder complimented Freddie Mercury a bunch, but said he was extraordinarily difficult, as as are every <laughs> every singer from the UK yeah. that he's ever worked with. So I wonder if that was an implicit dig at Chris Martin. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Metropolis. I don't. Are you, if you're familiar with uh, the Fritz Lang, Lang silent film Metropolis, gorgeous, amazing early sci-fi work, hugely important. Well. Uh, for the longest time, there were no good copies of it available, and as a silent film, for like decades upon decades, the original score was lost. So people would just throw up what whatever royalty-free bullshit they needed to on there to, to get people like to you know keep their attention going. Well, in the late '80s, Moroder compiled an all-star cast of musicians and uh, to score the film along with his own work. And uh, in doing so, I, I knew he did. I didn't realize how hands-on it was. Like he actually had to rebuild the film from scratch, personally seek out what he could find of it, because old films, they get cut up into pieces. They get sliced in the, in like, in the, even in the, in the theaters as they're, they're putting them on the reels and everything. So complete copies of Metropolis were impossible to find, and he actually, like, went on the hunt for it, going so far as he found 25 seconds of previously unknown footage on nitrate film, which he drove through L.A. in the middle of the day, and nitrate is highly explosive. Mm-hmm. And we also learned that, um... Klaus Nomi, an incredible um, early 80s performer, uh, falsetto voice, very cool in the nerd world because he had a, a sci-fi persona. If you've ever seen Venture Brothers, he's portrayed as one of um, David Bowie's cronies. Uh, he has the black and white outfit and sings in a high-pitched voice. Uh, so his, his, some of his classical performances actually inspired the main theme from Scarface. And listening to it, I could totally hear it. Yeah, that was really cool. And I honestly, I don't even think I've seen Scarface. But the music was pretty sweet, and I'm I'm excited to go watch it. Scarface is a pretty neat movie. It's yeah. intense. No, but... that's that's the takeaway from what uh, he talked talked about today. But the score is surprisingly awesome. I'll stop there. It was outstanding. His performance. I just will we'll cut ahead of that. It was outstanding. Basically, it was him playing his greatest hits live, remixing all of them uh, with an even more intense dance beat than they originally had. It was outstanding. Everybody had a great time. Yeah, I mean. There's not a lot to look at, and this was one of the issues compared to... Mixmaster Mike went on before him. Yeah. Famous for his work from the Beastie Boys as being a, a very famous well-known DJ. Well, he's a little more high energy from a performer perspective, but, you know, uh, he did a good job not considering that. I mean, he, he had the crowd fully into everything. Time out. Hello. Right now, just a little bit, please. Oh, I'm sorry about that. You're curious. We just got a complaint. Mixmaster Mike was great. It can't be overstated, like how good he is at what he does. Like I seldom see a DJ perform, like do it, do live mixing. That's that complex. That's that's versatile. He was doing all kinds of really creative stuff. Uh, he, he he did some really neat Beatles remixes that I didn't expect. Yeah. If you like mashups, this guy had every song you could ever think of mashed up with each other and in incongruous ways. He'd be playing <laughs> Beatles one second, then he'd jump to, you know, hip hop music. And it was again, check if you like mashups, this thing is it was amazing. And I, I guess that's what he always does. I don't know. I've never heard him before, perform before. But Yeah, um, there's a lot of stuff you couldn't necessarily put on an album. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean seriously, it's his reputation is well earned. Yes, very, very, very. So we we saw a, an MIT 
uh, panel. It was called um, uh, New Musical Frontiers by the MIT Media Lab. And this was really exciting for me because there were two presentations during this session, one of which I actually saw the predecessor for. Uh, Todd Macover is the director of the opera, new opera program up at MIT's Media Lab. And he, back in the late 90s, did this thing called the Brain Opera, which was basically like a little playground you'd go in and you'd, you'd use these different devices and you'd drive a driving game and you'd knock like these tree things and you'd, you'd just kind of play around. And then they would take all that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. That data that they generated and use that as their performance to actually perform the opera. Well, they've gone way beyond that now. Death and the Powers uh, is their newest, is Todd's newest uh, big work for opera. It is an actual opera. And yeah, and it's an actual opera. Like the Brain Opera thing was sort of opera. But this was just really cool. And they talked about some of the technologies they used to bring it to life. It, it's a it's an opera that actually uses robots, uh, many different varieties of of robots in the performance, both as actors as set pieces. And it's a sci fi theme. I mean, basically, not... <laughs> he, he said it ripped off. Uh, Transcendence actually directly ripped them off. Yeah. So it's 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 that whole story of what happens when you upload a human consciousness into machines, and we already know that it's the end of civilization from our, <laughs> right. our prior talk. But the other presentation that was really cool was the guy who founded Tristan. I forgot his last name. It might be. Uh, but he founded Echo Nest. Tristan Jihan. Which Echo Nest is basically one of the drivers behind Spotify and all these different um, Last FM, like all these different services that kind of predict what you want to listen to. And it's cool for me because basically he's talking about the research I did in grad school. Like back in the 2000s. And, and now everyone laughed at you. Oh, my God. I'm like, seriously? I could have freaking been done. The-. Anyway, he was really cool. <laughs> and I'm very excited about the work they're doing, especially their Remix uh, API. That's a JavaScript interface that you, anyone can use. And you just pull, you, you basically you know, code it up to plug into your music. And you can change the time signature. They have like Waltzify from it. So you can make anything into a waltz. Um, the dub or the wub it, version. It, it's like um, it's like that tool in Photoshop in the past few years where you um, you can highlight. I forget what it's called, like a band aid or something. You, you highlight a section that like needs to be o- overwritten, and it'll act like it'll the, the program will intuitively remove what what's in there that you've that you've highlighted. Uh, it's like that, but with music. Yeah. So it'll it'll very organically stretch the sounds in such a way so that they match these alternate time signatures. Almost like unnoticeably, yeah, it was pretty damn impressive. And then he showed something where they took a video. Yeah, that was my favorite part. That was <laughs> it was it was some retro footage from Soul Train, 
and they used a similar program to actually edit the video so that the people dancing would would be would be matched by whatever it was that was happening. So like like the the, the tempo of their their physical movements would change because the the video program could adapt to the music somehow. It, it, was, it was. I wish I could show it to you. It was spooky, <laughs> spooky awesome. But the whole point of it is, they're trying to build this tool that's kind of like Instagram for music, and so people can take their favorite songs, whatever they want to listen to, and remix them in real time to kind of achieve whatever you know they're interested in. So, um, very cool presentation. Uh, the other guy, Andy Cavatora, he is awesome, and the, mainly because like he worked with Bjork. He's the dude who created all all the instruments. Bjork had an album recently where she she created new instruments yeah. to be performed. Oh, Biophilia, and if you if you listen to the album, you're not getting the whole gist of it. You need to watch the performance footage from her tour because that's where you can see these cool instruments. And what's cool about him is, even though it's not like he has a technical background in like computer science or whatever, he actually builds mechanical instruments. And so he had this whole presentation about early automatons that would play music, these these like 17th and 18th century robots that would actually make sound by you know either acting out something or having like a bird call in a box. If you're into steampunk and you're not familiar with these things, yeah. this is going to expand your horizons because this is real life steampunk stuff. There isn't much that is, but this is. Yeah, and so he uh, he he took inspiration from all that and constructed these cool new instruments. And then finally, uh, the cherry on the top of all this is we did actually get to see Kraftwerk. They this is um today they performed one show yesterday, they performed two shows today, and it was man, 10, 11, it was two and a half hours. Yeah, at least. And it was amazing because I I mean I love Kraftwerk. But I, they're the fathers of synth music. Seriously, like in popular synth music, I suppose te- techno, you know, or that kind of era. But I mean, they realized it in a way that was not only very acoustically or you know, orally interesting. I mean, it's great music, but they, I think they've tweaked a lot of the stuff to sound a little more contemporary because mm-hmm. they would actually take their old songs and they play them in such a way that sometimes I felt like I was listening to stuff we'd heard yesterday or the day before, mm-hmm. like very much. You know, bringing it up to the current era, but keeping that same awesome German synthesis uh, sound. And they did it in 3D, so they had these crazy 3D visuals behind everything. Yeah, so they said, it's, they've been calling this Kraftwerk 3D, and I, I thought, well, what's it going to be? Just some kind of projection-y thing? Like, but no, they hand you glasses. You go, they, hand, they hand you glasses, and there's these 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 videos that they have, and they're videos they've been using for a number of years. These are actually the same videos I saw at Ultra several years ago, but they've made them all in the 3D, and with the presentation of these four guys on stage with their stark consoles and their really dynamic lighting, and these three expansive 3D visuals just pulling depth into it, it made everything so much more engaging. It was fascinating. And there were people in our audience who are either stoned off their ass or drunk off their ass or or whatever, or both, (laughs) and were really into it. A little too into it, perhaps, because they were, like, screaming for Trans-Europe Express. And then when they finally (laughs) played it, the guy, like, lost his shit. I was like, (laughs) seriously? I like Kraftwerk, and I don't like them that much. (laughs) But, no, if you have a chance to catch Kraftwerk on tour, you got to check them out. It's it's neat because they're they're actually touring with their entire discography, in a way. And I don't know if they actually played all of it this weekend. But they have they have done shows where they've played every album. And, like, over a period of several nights. (laughs) Yeah. Um... Watching these videos, 
you, there's there's moments of the videos that are, are coded specifically to specific moments of vocals, uh, specific keys, and so on and so forth, and they're hitting every single one. Now it's hard to see what they're doing necessarily because they're <laughs> they're like they're four guys at these keyboard consoles that are very like stark. You can't see what like where their hands are exactly, but they are playing their instruments and they're doing it very well. You might say with German precision. <laughs> like these guys are they they have the the, the um, the personas of being machines, they are machines, yeah. and they are very good at what they do. Yeah, I didn't even believe they were playing at first, and then over the course of a couple songs, I finally realized, okay, he's singing, and they're actually playing, and then by the end, you fully understand, kind of, not every time, because it's all just a stark, you know, you know, shadowy sort of things. You don't see any of their equipment behind their, their little podiums, but they are all performing, and it is awesome. So that concludes day three. Um, something I want to mention, though, that uh, we talked about in our Moogfest episodes leading up to, well, leading up to Moogfest, when we, when we talked with Claire Evans, we mentioned uh, a BBC America s- uh, series, the, uh, the True History of Science Fiction. That's actually been airing, and by the time you hear this episode, the second episode will be out. John and I both watched it and had a great time, and uh, which the, uh, the subject of which was robots and artificial intelligence, and it was great. They, they didn't just interview actors. They interviewed, like, everyone in the field. They interviewed... Uh, uh, puppeteers, writers. There's stuff with William Gibson. They have archive footage with Isaac Asimov, and he he pronounces robots robots, robots. Isaac Asimov. <laughs> Brian just threw up his hand. There you go, Tony. You're right. <laughs> uh, it, it was it was really cool, really educational. Um, I, I I learned some things about uh, the origins of R two D two I never knew before. So check out the series. Um, we'll link to where where well at least the official site. Maybe you can watch it there. I'm not sure. Uh, coming up, it's day day four. Welcome to day four, and it is six twenty p.m. We're doing things differently this time. It just so happened that John, Brian, and I are uh, uh, all here. Uh, we're in between the the little the dinner time lag of where the panels stop and the concerts begin. So we're prepared to talk about uh, today's panels. And we don't want to get yelled at by the hotel for being too loud. There were children next door. <laughs> so what exciting thing? Because I slept in a little bit. As did I. But, but John went to the keynote. Yeah, how was that? The keynote was effectively the exact same thing as yesterday, which was awesome because... It wasn't ridiculous, pessimistic nonsense, and instead was like far future, whatever. In fact, the only thing I can say about it that, you know, like to the negative is that I really feel like there was room in the discussion so far of Moogfest in general for somebody to actually talk about the next 10 years instead of the next like 100. AR is mentioned and just sort of like briefly, like not written off, but just not delved into. I don't think anyone would have understood what augmented reality was when they just randomly name drop it and keep going. Like if you've never heard of it, you just literally have this no idea. This was a guy named George Dvorsky. Um, what can you tell? What? Who is he? What does he do? Is it important? I don't know. What, he what is you got? a the head of a small group of basically futurist and bioethicists. Uh, and his is that like clone law? Yeah, I mean basically For it's real? all about in in a way it's, it's talking about you know life ethics. So you know what should we do or not do with all the crazy tech and living bodies. Um, and so he actually started out, ironic for a bioethicist, right, of saying, you know, okay, I'm going to talk about some shit, and I'm not going to go into the ethics of it, or whether or not we should do it. I'm just going to talk about pure potential here. And then he started, like, just going through stuff like, you know, we can, you know, here, we can already puppeteer people's bodies. What happens when we take that to the logical extremes? What could artists do with that? Puppeteering, you know, like a musician being able to puppeteer the entire crowd, bodies directly where you just sort of let yourself go and the music literally moves you 
um, what happens if we're able to directly modify people's moods um, and art could actually directly communicate you know, fear or, or passion or that kind of stuff to people. But yeah, but, people but, artificially but, 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 but let's not worry about the ethics. No, no, we'll take care of that later. I mean, of course, he did on occasion mention it, and he wasn't always talking about it from the purpose of the entertainers. It was obviously that that was kind of like ad hoc. But hey, what could you guys do with that? Mm-hmm. Um, but the answer to that is nothing, because nobody in their right mind would allow most of these technologies to exist for sheer fear of the consequences. But overall, it was a, a pretty good time. Followed up by a, a panel called "Sounds of Space," space, which I did, I, which I did attend for mo- most of. Unfortunately, it was, it was nestled right up against another thing that we'll get into. But it was, uh, it was great. Like everything I saw was great. Uh, primary presenters was Bill Kurth, who uh, researches plasma waves and solar wind. He's been at um, at some university in Iowa, uh, basically listening to sounds from uh, the Cassini and Voyager probes forever. Like since the, since the birth of those like programs, the seventies and, and uh, li- like use listening to sounds made from their antenna or translating some of the, the math and so on into sound to judge scientific discovery, uh, to judge the discovery of, uh, lightning on Jupiter and Saturn. And this guy has over 400 papers in publication. Okay. Yeah, but he's an older guy, right? He is older, yeah, but 400 papers but is a... Yeah, for it is good, a good mark good. there. And, and, you know, I mean, he is responsible for basically the the discovery of lightning on another planet for yeah. the first time. We did not know that it was even possible. Did they play any examples of... This oh, yeah. yeah. Tons. <laughs> Sound pretty cool. Yeah, uh, <laughs> some of which have even been used in, like, uh, pop culture and compiled on albums, actually, oh, cool. his work. Yeah, I think I've heard some, like, random, like, noise from other planet, lightning stuff. Gibberish, uh, weird uh, sounds he, that don't make any sense. He cited yeah. a, a flexi-disc from back in the day called Sounds of Saturn. Um, flexi-discs are the, uh, the, like, the things they used to attach to magazines, like National Geographic. Yeah. There's a, a, a New Age record called uh, Voyager Grand Tour Suite by Michael Lee Thomas. I'm looking all this stuff up afterwards. Yeah, I need um, to check that out. Yeah, Cronus Quartet's uh, Sun Rings. So while you guys were doing that, I actually went and saw Ableton, uh, a software package for making music and specifically aimed for like playing live music, but you can also use it to so record Ableton stuff. Live. Ableton Live, exactly. <laughs> and it was a cool presentation. It was very much sort of a just lecture about the, these two guys who use it to play uh, up in a band in, in Minnesota. Not, not too much that was of any note, but kind of inspired me to get back into uh, Ableton a little bit. Uh, I then went to the Google presentation... And basically, this is Google's creatives, sort of a sampler of what Google does in sort of the creative arts world. Uh, most of the people on the team were either doing Google Doodles or uh, – do you guys remember that Radiohead video, uh, House of Cards? And they took like Tom York's face and they scanned it with a LiDAR and the video was like all just kind of visualizations yep. of that data. So that's this guy. Um, I didn't realize that's what they did, but I, I do remember it. But all the Google guys were really cool. They talked about the uh, the Moog Google Doodle, of course. What? Oh, oh, right. I was about to ask what the Doodles were, but the Doodles are the, the, the different graphics on the Google main page every day. Right. So if you've ever happened upon Google and oh, they've Christ. got some weird thing up there, you don't know what it is, you start playing with it, that's their team. In An fact, entire Doctor Who video game, then. <laughs> which was awesome. I, mean, I should have asked them about it, actually. But, um, so the musical ones, though, that they talked about were the, the Moog one, the Debussy uh, little thing where they played La Mer, I think. Uh, no, Claire de Lune. And had all the different things in the French... A cityscape happening while it played the notes, 
And they had a guitar one too that I remember that actually let you save what you played. You like plucked the strings. Mm. It was for Les Paul's uh, one of his, you know, some some Didn't anniversary. They had a piano one too. At one point. And they had done a piano. One. They didn't mention that. But what was really cool was, I guess, the way they implemented the guitar one. They actually took all the little strings that you plucked and they put the whole thing in a URL. They encoded like that entire sequence that you would play in the URL string. And so you could send it to your friends so they could play it back. Wow. But instead of like caching it or doing something fancy, no, they just took the whole thing and sequenced it out. Long fucking URL. Oh, uh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> APIs, right? Yeah. Like, so, huge uh, URL. Another Google guy actually uh, was one of the first, uh, he was the one who invented that string thing uh, actually to visualize, or I'm sorry, auralize and visualize the New York City subway system. So what would happen is they would just draw random strings or, or then draw the, the subway pass on like a, you know, a grid. And if, uh, as a train is moving along or as the line is moving along and it intersects another line, it makes a sound. I'm, so, I'm unfamiliar with this project. I hadn't heard of it really either. cool. No, I got to check it out. But um, that's Alex Chen. His other big thing, though, is he took the Google Glasses as one of the first uh, people to take that and use it in composing. And so he would shoot a video of him playing on his viola uh, and then uh, layered it up in, in a series of little video clips. So you've all seen those videos. Uh, I forgot the guy who's really popular right now. He's got the long hair. But they'll do like that array of video clips on YouTube. To, to make a sound. To make a where, whole where song. Every, where everybody rips off Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells video. Oh, totally. totally. <laughs> right. But I mean, it's every... It's an homage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's all the same person playing and just laying on top. So so the Google thing was, it was really cool. They talked about WebGL and how Chromium and the, the Chrome browser, how they're using WebGL to do a bunch of cool stuff. There's different visualization libraries. They talked about some work for Arcade Fire. I don't know if you guys remember. Yeah, no, I, I remember. The, the, was it the Wilderness? Uh, the Google yeah. Maps thing. You put in your address of where you lived as a kid, and they actually took like pre-existing data and footage and music, and they kind of played the Arcade Fire song uh, with that. And then they also did one in Haiti for Reflector, where you could actually really? put yourself... Uh, they had a bunch of people in mocap suits, motion capture suits, and you could put your likeness, I guess, on one of those characters or something, and you'd see the video oh, man. with that, which I haven't checked that out. I, I hope did that's play... still active. Yeah, the, the previous one, which was from years ago, like it actually debuted Chrome, yeah. I think, yeah. um, as a browser, and it was it was really amazing because they simply they asked for some some geo data that pertains to your life, and they could really, it was it was really moving and very startling what they were able to accomplish with like using a little bit of personal data in Google Maps. Yeah, it was really neat. So that was my morning, and then I went over to the Don Buchla exposition, where Don Buchla, a pioneer synthesist uh, who largely eschewed keyboards, I didn't re- remember this, I had studied him a long time ago, and, and uses this fancy space-age uh, controller surface, this is back in the 60s, built these Shit. Buchla synthesizers that then Morton Subotnik, for his uh, Silver Apples on the Moon, which is his most famous piece, used and, and still, I guess, performs with occasionally. Uh, so he couldn't make it directly, but his son was there. So his son brought one of these Buchla synthesizers with the funky control surface and actually played a piece that his father had written fairly recently. Oh, wow. And then they Skyped in his dad to have a like, question and answer. Well, that's special. Uh, yeah, well, what was really shocking about it, you know, again, Morton Subotnik, uh, you know, legendarily approached Buchla and supposedly got Buchla interested in this in the first place. Well, what, what Buchla said today is that he approached Morton Subotnik uh, about this. So it's contradicting completely what I think most people have understood of, you know, their relationship. 
And I guess the reason he went to Morton Sabotnik in the first place is the guy had a three-track recorder, and all he had was a one-track. <laughs> so it's kind of like Marauder going to that university and being like, I want to use your stuff to make my stuff, and that turned into a great creative relationship. So, uh, Oh, and then this, this is going to appeal to some of our listeners, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Timothy O'Leary, of course, we all know, being yes. king of the psychedelics. I guess his sort of group, he had that whole kind of group of people that were into psychedelics. He inspired Buchla, and Buchla kind of fell in with that group. And when Buchla was designing some of the circuitry, which if you ever have a chance, go look up a Buchla. You'll see it's kind of crazy. Beyond just the controller, the, the, the patch cables are different colors. The, the knobs are in like spirals and circles. It's, it's, creep, it's crazy. Well, I guess he was on some of the psychedelics. He admitted this today uh, <laughs> when he designed these circuits. And he's like, yeah, a lot of times when you're designing circuits on psychedelics, it doesn't always work. And you don't quite know what it's supposed to do, but my circuitry just worked magically. You know, so he kind of like was kind of pompous or whatever. <laughs> but I mean, that was kind of cool too. I've never heard anyone admit to that uh, in, in electronics. <laughs> I'm sure he's not the only one, but you know. Yeah, no, that, that's that's crazy. I can only uh, imagine how difficult that is. Yeah. Fun, fun Timothy Leary fact: He uh, uh, multiple times portrayed a character in uh, Devo's canon of characters, uh, Doctor Birthfood. Really, really, there's not too much Timothy Leary in the character, but I mean, he's, he's there. He's actually portrays him in video. So, what I, one of the ones I wanted to go to, I didn't get to go, is the Omni reboot one. Yes. Uh, what was that like? Well, uh, you know, we talked to Claire Evans, who um, from Yacht, who is the editor at large of Omni, who is cool um, kid number one. He, yeah, uh, she. Uh, she told us roughly what she was planning on doing, but I think what, what it ended up turning into was, as she put it, a variety show. So uh, they had many, they had a set of group of people who were doing different, very different things, and instead of like mashing their very different things all together in like some kind of uh, amorphous sort of blob. Non- nonlinear blob, it was it was just it was a series of presentations. So uh, Claire went up and had a, a great like hypothetical conversation about the nature of uh, of communicating with extraterrestrial life or artificial intelligent life basically alternate sentient life in in pop culture and the and the actualities of what that means you know like what what we can expect or can't expect you know a very very open ended but very well worded really good and that was followed by reasonably poetic yes Yes, uh, and that was followed by a uh, a reading of a screenplay by Martine Sims, who uh, wrote the story set in uh, uh, 2050 Los Angeles, and, and the purpose of it being a mundane future. It's a day in the life of a very normal person, and there's these all these bizarre notes of like like the things she has to do to like unlock the store that she works at as a key, a key holder there, and and the different ways that she interfaces with people and like and and drugs and boyfriends. And uh, and blankets that that tell you like what time it is. Oh, cool! And, and it just like weird little notes here and there. It it's w- always daring to try to do anything like that. It's yeah. like you know, if you ever look at the the conversations about making Blade Runner, they were like designing the kitchen was, you know, places that you're really really familiar with. That's the hardest damn thing in the sure, world. Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, and then there was Doug Vakoch, completely different direction. This guy actually works at SETI for SETI. Uh, it, basically, he he talked at length about the history of SETI. Uh, the different communications that have been sent out, what they mean, how, uh, how ways that we need to uh, approach thinking about sending signals with uh, the purpose of contact into space, setting up like kind of qualifiers for us as a race, 
uh, both like mathematically sending out like sequences of numbers that could be considered universal. Like one must presume if someone's receiving the signal, then they also have a math similar to ours. So here's a set of like a certain variety of numbers to show like you know like what's up. Yeah. And uh, and then like various other things like talking about uh, sending messages of altruism into space to show like how we communicate with each other. But it's interesting because there's certain like abstraction there because the theory goes that we know because we can't possibly know what extraterrestrial life would be like we can't possibly know what information we should send them that won't be like uh completely misinterpreted because we can't even assume that they have anything resembling the bodies of ourselves or any other animal on the planet so there's a lot of like hypotheticals and it basically boils down to if we're not sending them simple math then we really 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 have to come up with some complicated ways of expressing things, right? And and it was uh, it was good. It was very uh, very info heavy. He talked about a project SETI has called Earth Speaks, which is at earthspeaks.seti.org, which we'll link to on this episode's page, where they've been collecting messages from general populace. You too could submit this uh, of what messages people would like to send to extra- extraterrestrials, which has been an interesting uh, social practice because they've um, the w- the the general consensus about things is there's lots of like. Uh, you know, uh, I believe in you. People don't believe in you. Or like, um, uh, the Earth is doomed. Can you please help us? And, <laughs> and like, there's there's very it's a, it's a very interesting to see what the kinds of people who would go to that website are concerned about with extraterrestrial life and their relationship with that theoretical entity. Yeah. As an aside about the unknowns, I'd really like to see an actual study where instead of being, you know, like with the singularity, this is an unknowable, unknowable kind of a thing, I'd like to see more of a, we're going to solve for X and try to figure out what kind of evolutionary physiologies would allow for a technological tree to even be started. You have to be able to move materials around. You have to be able to recombine it. Otherwise, you're nothing. And so I wonder, working with that kind of constraint, if they couldn't start to try to figure out where aliens would be coming from biologically. Right, and I feel like that's an important step. I'm, I, I think SETI's a very important group, um, but it, uh, clearly there's, I guess, like some sort of division about like what it is they're actually looking for and what it is they should be doing. Uh, but there was a lot of consensus that music could be taken with take this with a grain of salt. But like that, that much like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Like, perhaps they won't perceive sound in the same way. But if they do, then that would be the best way. I I would argue, though, that music might also be more a matter of their brains than it does about their ability to actually hear. Yeah, and they, I mean, they mentioned that. Yeah, because it just, it seems like to me, like, music is one of those things that could literally just be noise if it didn't interact with your brain the way that it does with humans. um, Then it concluded with a performance by King Britt, who is in the middle of a project where he's going to be creating soundtracks to some of the art from original Omni magazines. That's, uh, that's awesome. That art's really cool. It is very cool. I, you it's mean, all they've been posting on their feed is like just more of their like classic, old art, and yeah. it's just all this crazy it, classic if you sci-fi. Wanna, if you want to check out classic Omni and the illustrations therein, they also it's sell all prints. Online. I'm just going to throw that out there because I know that they do. <laughs> and then I went to this presentation between uh, Dave Smith and Ron Lynn about The Tempest, which is this awesome... Uh, sort of supercharged drum machine, analog synthesis engine that you can play like any other synthesizer with a keyboard plugged in if you want, but at its core is just a kick-ass way to make beats and and uh, bass tracks. And, and the stuff that got out of this machine, like they played a few of their like the things they uh, had people submit. I mean, they had eight-bit stuff. 
They had really funky sort of fat beat, you know, whatever. And they had just crazy sounds that you go, this comes out of an analog. No patch or uh, no um, samples. This is all analog. Shit. All originated from this this one the, instrument. The, I, I, I sat in on a little bit of it, and there was some, actually some beautiful stuff coming yeah. out of there. And you were like, this is... This is at its core like a drum machine kind of thing. How? Well, they were they were even kind of laughing. They're like, you know, really, this thing is shouldn't we shouldn't call it a drum machine, but because it has those pads on the front, I mean, that's what people are going to think of. But man, this thing's killer, and I wouldn't mind having one to mess around with at some point. Uh, so we haven't seen any of the music yet. We're gonna there's there's MIA's playing, Sheik is playing with Nile Rodgers. Uh, you know if you're more more Daft Punk referential stuff, uh, he's an incredible record producer who, whose work was highlighted there. And uh, we'll and we'll, we'll see we'll see what else we have time for. Because there's a bazillion things going on all the time, every hour of the day, and that's kind of a problem for seeing it all. <laughs> yep, it's now nighttime, and we've uh, we've seen the shows that we set out to see on this Saturday night. Highlighted by Chic, the classic 1970s disco group, uh, fronted and uh, founded by Nile Rogers, who, if you don't know the name before, you probably know now because of his collaboration with Daft Punk. He's responsible for Get Lucky, pretty much. Uh, the groove of Get Lucky, at the very least. So, um, man, it was fantastic. It was much like uh, Pet Shop Boys. You know, it, it could have easily been like, eh. But instead it was like, Whoa! It looked like pretty much all the original members of the band. Uh, you got horns, saxophones, funk band ensemble. Two amazing female singers. Like, amazing. And now Rogers, man, he he's cool. Before the show started, he was perched at the, at the front of the uh, stage just talking with people in the front row. Just hanging out. He didn't care. He's now Rogers. What are they going to do? Stop him? See, now I'm really sad that I missed this. When you said there were horns, and I... Uh... What'd you think? I don't know. I was drinking beer with our colleague Derek, who is off having adventures in in Asheville, and we were having a great time conversing over a beer about life and the universe and everything. A and, beer about life. And and then I lost track of time, but I did get to see Craig Leon uh, and his Nomos Live. Yeah, I also checked out Craig Leon at the advice of Dan Deacon. I might add, and, and I read about him. And he sounded pretty cool. The guys. Um, he scored some films in the past, Karate Kid, uh, 200 Cigarettes, and uh, Nomos is a 1980 record of his, a synth record, and uh, so he was performing it with a string ensemble, two violins, a viola, and a cellist. F- uh, space projections. Yes, very space. In fact, there was one sequence that looked like the time vortex from Doctor Who, and I got very excited, except, and, he, and the music even had a little tinge, like something about the rhythm reminded uh-huh. me of the Doctor Who theme. But everything else, I was kind of like, all right, this is cool. A little monotonous, a little repetitive, very minimalistic. Yeah. So, uh, you know, not terrible. Certainly uh, I, not. I would definitely, I'm actually pretty curious to check out the, the yeah. album itself. It did take its time to get places. The The strings were kind of nominal from what we, or marginal from what we saw. Yeah. But then there was, there was some, it started picking up. Like everything I felt started picking up as I had to leave because I needed to take photos of MIA. They were performing tonight. Uh, they were processing the sounds of the string players because, well, they were at the very least electrified, if not outright processed, and, and they got lost in the sort of mix of everything else. Um, but, you know, it was cool, and then I went over to MIA with you, and uh, and that happened. Yeah, MIA did her MIA thing, and, you know, such as it is what it is. I want to talk a little bit more about Nile Rogers. Oh, please. Uh, he... He, he, early on, he got on the stage. He's, he's a talkative guy, so that's good because I like when a performer talks to the audience. I think that's really important, like that kind of interactivity. 
and he was like, so um, so we're going to play these songs, and I wrote all these songs. And I'm like, well, I, I, I know, Niles. You, like, I, I know you wrote the songs. Why you, you think that much of yourself? And then, then he got to the point, and he was like, because uh, I don't want you to think that Chic is a cover band, because we're going to play only songs that I wrote. So that includes songs from ev- from all kinds of major artists. So, I mean, I heard... I heard Notorious by Duran Duran, or Made Popular by Duran Duran. I heard Like a Virgin, sung by someone other than Madonna, someone with more vo- considerably more vocal prowess than Madonna. Wow. Uh, here's how, how fucked up my head is, though. Is like, as soon as I heard like you know the beat and the thing started, like the, fr- the first lyrics I'm waiting for are, I finally made it to med school. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> like what? Oh, God damn it. Nice. <laughs> Um, Weird Al would be so happy. Yeah, he's he's really he's done some things. There's certain songs that I that are only Weird Al versions in my head. But yeah, it was it was fantastic. Just a really incredible performance. And, and then Brian and I walked around an awful lot. We yeah, we went to the basement first, which is the venue that was directly underneath the center where we saw MIA and Nas Rogers and all that. It, it's like uh, it's like the the sub basement of a like hockey arena. If yeah. that makes any sense. And uh, we went there to see the Crystal Arc. Yeah. But we might have actually seen the Museum of Love. We're not quite sure. They, he had a head of vocoder or something, and yeah. he said, we're the mra mra mra. And yeah. so it, it could have been either. It, it wasn't bad. It was actually sort of a full band, but then with synthes- synthesis on top of it and vocoding and all this other stuff. So, uh, you know, it was good for, for a little bit. And then we uh, trekked down the hill to uh, the, the place where uh, Craig Leon was performing. Yeah, and uh, we caught uh, Holly Herndon. Yeah, which uh, interesting. Uh, I, at first, I was very excited because her was a female vocalist, and then and synthesis behind her, and with these visuals of like Japan domestic life with floating. It, 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 it was like it was like something that could have been processed on a on an N sixty four, like floating food cartons from Japan, three three D renderings of them. Uh, and then some objects that were 2D images, like um, like the figures in Mario Kart yeah. 64, Billboard. and floating inside these bizarre panoramic, like low, not low resolution, but like low quality panoramic renditions of of like Japanese domestic settings, and they were all like hovering crazily, and the camera would like. <laughs> there were no boundaries. The camera would pan through objects, and then all of a sudden, pigeons, flat like 2D <laughs> images of pigeons, started getting introduced. And all the while, she's singing like straight tones, and the synthesis, whatever processing she's doing, it's like ha 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 ha, and so the whole thing was just her making this ha 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 sound against all this other stuff, and it was just kind of surreal, a little bit surreal. I I, I enjoyed it overall. I, it was an experience. And I it was the best band we saw tonight, actually, other than <laughs> Niles Rogers. But no, it was it was interesting, and then we got there basically right at the end of our set. Yeah. So then we're like, all right, we're off to another venue, and. Uh, we caught the, uh, I guess, the, almost the tail end of K Tronada, yeah. which, uh, again, Derek from our uh, Consequence of Sound stuff, he recommended them highly, actually, saying that they had some sexy beats. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I can it was, see it was, that. It was a guy. It was a guy. It was, yeah, a, yeah. It was a mixer. Basically, I think we, we've hit all the high points musically uh, so far, I think. I mean, not to, there's, not, there's a lot going on tonight, but nothing we saw was really too captivating it's weird yeah it was uh definitely uh, a little bit of a down from last night's high of everything and then craft work i mean yeah now i'm sad i missed uh not rogers but uh earlier in the day 
Cap and I did catch Dan Deacon. They were doing this, they call durational performance, where it's like uh, three hours in an installation in an art museum where they have tons of gear and three hours to just play whatever they want. Yeah, and they've had people from like Deerhoof, LCD Sound System coming in and out of this thing all weekend. Um, what impressed me about Mr. Deacon, unlike the other artists that we've seen so far, is his stuff, well, it was a little more interesting, and he had a piano that he had opened up the front of. And if you've ever looked inside of a piano, you can see all the, all the strings and all the hammers that hit the strings. And so he had all of that exposed, and he had some mechanical way of playing the piano remotely through his sequencer. So he would actually send control signals to the piano or to the sequencer thing. It would play the piano physically, and then he would record that and pass that back through whatever processing he was doing with his, his analog synthesis. And it sounded kind of cool. A very repetitive, very drone. A lot of this stuff is very drone heavy, but still, probably the most interesting thing I've seen, at least in and mixing. I, I think you know. what might be the case with the durational thing is they they let say to the artist, "All right, you're coming in," and they there's just here's here's a big fucking Moog console. Here's a a fucking barrage yeah. of um what what are the little ones. Uh, Mogerfugers. Yeah, Mogerfugers. It's just like a line of Mogerfugers, and like here's all these cables. Yep. Go crazy, and yep. so so you don't really play music there. You just you 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 noodle all, yeah. all day. Well, and it's it's improv, and it's it's like I said, drone based. So lots of long sustained sounds and processing, and they have video footage behind them that's doing whatever. Yeah, weird... it's being it's being live mixed actually by two artists. Oh, okay, so yeah. that makes sense. But I mean, it, it was interesting. You know, I didn't get to catch Dan Deacon on uh, last night, so it was cool to at least see a little bit about what he did. Oh, and he was singing into his microphone. Fairly constantly, and then processing that into some kind of weird sound. So that was cool. That was Saturday, and and tomorrow tomorrow's gonna be pretty light. But it ends with a bang. We got the math of Futurama and The Simpsons. Uh, so we'll tell you all about that. And anything else we do in but a moment. Hey guys, welcome to day five. It's Sunday, the last day of Moogfest. I'd argue that yesterday was the last day because today's like almost could just be a literal day called post festival. I was going to say Sunday is the day in which we rest. Yeah. Yes, evidently, it's, it's been an incredible weekend at uh, all in all. But it did sort of end with a whimper, uh, totally. in, in, in a way. Now, now today, the highlight of the day, and really, in a lot of ways, one of the the, the only thing of true like noteworthiness was the math of Futurama and The Simpsons, which had a bunch of uh, Futurama writers, the co-creator and executive producer David X. Cohen, who we interviewed in one of our episodes leading into this, and uh, Simon Singh, uh, the guy who wrote the book on all the, the mathematical Easter eggs in The Simpsons. What made this special was that they talked about Futurama as well. Uh, we'll get into that in, in depth, but I guess just on like finishing up the thought about uh, about the festival sort of petering out, is like there's there's other things that happened today, and Brian, you went to some of them, and, and there's there's some music today, but it's uh it's a bunch of dance acts, not really truly of any kind of note. Basically, Wednesday and Saturday, I think, should have been combined into a single day. Oh, or sorry, Wednesday, Wednesday and Sunday. Sunday yeah. yeah, it's it's it is. You expect the last day to at least have a decent amount of activity, even yeah. if it's kind of peters off in the afternoon. Yeah, but when this, everybody's like, I am paying for another hotel and runs just, out of town. There just was not a lot today. Uh, case in point, it's four p.m. Yeah, and, and we're done. And we're done. So the Futurama panel. 
It was great. Now, uh, David X. Cohen talked a lot about on the episode we did with them about uh, what we could expect. He mentioned a lot of things they mentioned in this panel, but it was really cool because it had, I mean, like the benefit of having the other writers, uh, Stuart Burns, Jeff Westbrook, and Ken Keeler, the guy who wrote the famous Futurama Proof, uh, solving the mathematical equation of if you have a mind transference device by which you can't swap back into your body. Directly. uh, Yeah, directly. How can you then get everybody back into their bodies? Transitivity is involved, I'm guessing. The word didn't come up, but most likely. Okay, I was just saying. Ironically enough, you can actually simplify it down really, really quickly, where it works out if you have an even number of transfers beforehand, you can do it with only one extra person. But if you have an odd number, you require two people. Two new people into the equation. Yeah, two new people to, added into to, it to be able to resort everybody. Uh, yeah, to usher in the sorting process. He actually, like, we went we went over in the episode, but uh, but Ken actually went into it in depth, entertaining but exhaustive detail about how he came to the the conclusion and how one would execute it. It, it actually reminded me a bit of like a computer's buffer with yeah. the way that it ultimately wound up being solved, which is you know the person sort of acted like to carry it over and carry it over and carry it over, you know until like the end and then popped out. It almost sounds like Towers of Hanoi, yeah. if, you're, if anyone's familiar with that kind of proof. It's very, move this to that, move this to that, and in so many steps you can eventually get everything in one. That, Is that where you have to stack from one side to the other, yes. and you have... Do you know that in Mass Effect 1, they basically made you solve that to reactivate an energy reactor? I don't know if I got that far, but that's cool. I like that. It was just like, here you are, you cannot progress the game until you figure out this damn puzzle. <laughs> like, Do it, human. Uh, so that was the one instance of a piece of math that actually affected the story of any of the shows. Most of them have all been joke elements, not actually part of the plot. Well, the the P anyway. equals NP uh, thing, yeah, uh, like that sight gag from back when the original run. They talked about that in Homer in Homer Cubed. Oh. Homer Cubed. Homer Cubed, and then it's also... It's also an episode of Futurama. Okay, see, I didn't know it was in Homer Cubed. All I knew was that in that, the video game inspired one of Futurama, and that was the moment when I was like, okay, somebody's a computer science major here, because that is exactly so the kind of stuff In the Futurama do. video game, PNP as well showed up? No, no, no. The uh, the episode inspired by video games where they had the space oh, invaders. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They didn't actually didn't. They said the name of the episode, but they didn't explain which one it was. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And, you know, in however many seasons they have, I'm just like, eh. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, that was the moment when I went, okay, there's some serious uh, geek cred in this. Uh, Either that or they're stuff. just insane, and those random gibberish they splashed up on the wall. And it sounds like both, so that's yeah. great. So, 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 in most cases, they said that uh, the, these math jokes are were generally a part of quote, increasing the comedic density of the show. Because when Simpsons started, it was the dawn of, of the VHS age, where people were recording episodes, and they would catch these things, because they'd get these multiple viewings where they could pause the screen. And then in Futurama, it increased to an extreme amount, especially once HD entered the picture, because it was possible to see even more in the background. Freeze frame. So, so there were opportunities to stick in jokes for repeat viewers, and they actively did this. They even said, if you join the writing staff of a show such as this, expect to spend your first year doing nothing but coming up with sight gags for the background. That's awesome. They uh, they, they talked a little about, about Homer Cube, the um, classic uh, Treehouse of Horror 6 episode with uh, a CGI Homer uh, who eventually descends into the real world. And something I didn't know about it, you know, like there's a joke in there where Homer just stands there idling. He's like, man, this place sure looks expensive. You know, like waiting, killing time as as all this expensive computer animation is processed. That's right. And in fact, it costs nothing. The episode, it, it, it looks great for its time. It was done for free because was, it would have cost so much. <laughs> right. It was it was um, some kind of 
computer animation company offered like, to do it. Sure, we'll do this. Yeah, they offered to do it for free. I guess you know because like sure. it's the motherfucking Simpsons. Yeah, absolutely. So. So that was an interesting fact. I had no idea. Uh, Leela was originally going to be a theremin player. Oh, why not? Uh, And why not was because they're like, ah, then we have to explain what the theremin is and how it works for like, it's five seconds we don't have. Uh, I think they should have just shown her doing it and then, you know. Yeah, move on. They did an American Horror Story. You know, that would have been like an Earth season one sort of thing. Okay. And uh, in season one, they were very paranoid about how much sci-fi content they could actually sure. cram in there. Absolutely. Which you would know if you listened to our interview with David X. Cohen. And uh, if you want to learn more about, about all this stuff, Simon Singh, he wrote that book, The Simpsons and Their Mathematical Secrets. We'll link to where you can buy it on this episode's page. It's got all this and more. Well, uh, it's got it's got all the Simpsons stuff we're not talking about because the Futurama stuff so far was exclusive to this talk. Uh, and they were all really thrilled. They've done similar talks. They're all really thrilled to be giving it to a group of people who weren't just comic book nerds right who were actually like you know potentially science nerds so that was very cool but brian i have absolutely no clue what you saw so i'm very interested what what else happened on this last day today was actually gert bevin this guy is from belgium and he is a software developer and a musician like myself uh and he is excited about this thing called the eigenharp and you might have heard or seen of this thing in passing i don't know depending on your what you read and what you watch on the line but it is like a bassoon if you know what a bassoon is, with a mouthpiece and everything, but with a guitar sort of tablature layout, and each button is actually a separate three-dimensional axis sort of controller. And there's an array of buttons, depending on the model. Uh, And he had, I believe, the towel, which is basically, like I said, a full, from the floor up to about your shoulder instrument. It is a controller that outputs an extremely high rate of data that then can be converted into things like MIDI, OSC, and any any format, really. Jesus. So this thing allows you to do probably the most intuitive, no, I don't say intuitive, the most uh, high degree of precision performance controller that, of anything I've seen. So he actually performed on this a couple times. And, uh, I mean, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's really cool. And it's because it's not, he's not making sound with it. He's making data. The data is getting fed into, in this case, his iPad, and the iPad is turning that into audio. The amount of precision that he can get from this instrument could be fed into something like an iPad, could be fed into something like uh, a VST or a virtual synthesizer in any kind of software package and be rendered in its full glory of all the little nuances of performance. Uh, The phrase he uses, play the envelope. And if you don't know what a musical envelope, it's basically how does the note I, start? I don't actually. Attack the case, stay and release, ADSR. How does the note start? How long does it, like the different amplitudes, how, uh, how does it start? How does it sustain? How does it drop off and how does it stop? Those are the four parameters that you control. And with Moogs, you control with knobs. So you actually set the ADSR manually and they have envelope controls for that. With this instrument, you actually can play each note independently and have each note have its own ADSR uh, envelope and get what is closer to a real traditional instrument where you have that level of control with your mouth or with uh, the strings on a violin or whatever. That so is insane. Yeah, that, it I, is awesome, and I almost bought one. Um, I didn't because have, what's what's the price point? So you can get a small <laughs> version, which is probably what I'll get called a Pico for about seven hundred bucks, and they have one on eBay. And I was like tempted, but I'm like, I got no, no, no. I got other stuff I want to do first. The uh, one he had was several thousand dollars. He also showed off some other stuff that he had actually written software for. He was on the Eigenharp development team, so he had written software for that. But he had this thing called the uh, Leap 
uh, leap motion. The leap motion, uh, which you can get for only eighty dollars, and it's a little box plugs into your computer and gives you. Not one, but two hands worth of three-dimensional data that you can move your hands around, you can gesture, you can do different things, and it will map that into a controller space. And he wrote this software package called Gecko that then translates that into something you can use to control a virtual instrument. Uh, so that's really cool. In fact, that, I did actually order that because I'm like, you know what? I'm going to play with this. It sounds cool. Uh, but it's like a 3D mouse for uh, simplicity. So it's, it's like Iron Man augmented reality yeah. controls that you can't see, yes. but you know are there because you set the parameters. It's absolutely. basically like a tiny connect. Yes. So that's what I did today. And I bought beer. Yeah. Which I'm not drinking. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've one, one memory I, I forgot. One of the, the, the saving graces of the MIA performance last night, which was, eh, whatever, yeah. was, uh, was seeing Neil Harbison, yeah. Cyborg, watching her video projections, which are just like these complete hodgepodge color clusterfucks. And, you know, knowing that he's sitting there, nodding his head, hearing M.I.A.'s dope beats, but also hearing uh, all of the colors that her video performance was making. Wow. I can't even imagine the, the cacophony of that <laughs> experience. But, hey, that's great. He, he was there longer than we were, so he, he must have <laughs> been enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so... Before we go, uh, we got we got to give some shout outs. It's the end of the month, and uh, Nerdy Show is completely listener supported. Our entire podcast network is listener supported. All the stuff we do, be it Nerdy FM, our twenty four seven streaming nerd music station at Nerdy FM, or any of our video content, it's all because you guys like what we do and spare a little bit of money just to say thanks. And in turn, we give you a bunch of exclusive stuff in your email, like uh, outtakes and um, all kinds of deleted content, including deleted content from uh, from this episode even. we'll have a, oh, There's a whole package of uh, deleted stuff from all of our Moog-related episodes, which is going to be very heavy on uh, deleted SciTech ramblings from one Jonathan West. <laughs> Yay, I'm on the B-track. <laughs> so we, we, made, we hit our minimum goal. That's $300. That's the bare bones what it costs to to work the network. If you're hearing this, there's still a couple days left, and that means that uh, you have the opportunity to provide us with some money that will enable us to do more things. Because, you know, bare bones is good. Bare bones means the, the lights stay lit and all that, but uh, but more money means more cool stuff from Nerdy Show. So, uh, like like new equipment for more videos and so on and so forth. So, just because we hit our, our first goal, do not hesitate to support us. And we actually have a stretch goal um, that uh, we're nowhere near meeting uh, $600, but maybe, uh, maybe we can in some whirlwind act of kindness and money. A money cyclone. So, since last episode, some new people have contributed and pushed us over that, that minimum goal. Joshua Machette said $8 because you surpassed my expectations, and another 6 for The Real Congregation, and 6 for Wicked Anime. Anna Barrett said, you guys always seem to have trouble meeting your minimum the month after Big Support Drive. And that's very true. She said, let me help, and contributed to us. Thank you so much, Anna. Dr. Tallis said, you continue to be my NPR, Nerdy Podcast Radio. I like that a lot. And Barry I said, monthly Nerdy Show donation, keep being awesome. He's one of the wonderful few who actually set their own parameters for uh, a monthly amount that they'll always give to Nerdy Show. In the future, we hope to provide a more streamlined subscription service, uh, probably via Patreon or, or, or one of the new services like that that have cropped up. But uh, but he and many others do it, and he's very awesome for doing it. I think he's a Flame One listener as well. I think I recognize uh, Ian uh, Barry. Yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, he's a nice guy. He's been really supportive. And then finally, Joe Barta, 
who put us over the mark. He said, consider this month funded, punks. Thanks for all you guys do. Keep producing great content to keep me from being bored. I'll pull one out for you. And in doing so, he actually he actually earned three microsodes all at, all at once, which is which is very unconventional. But what happened was there was a a wonderful and extremely kind first time donor, Eric Maxiner, who in one blow got two earned two microsodes, di- dictating what we would talk about for fifteen minutes. And he said, "You know what? Give them to whoever brings you over three hundred dollars." So. Um, so it was Joe Barda. He could pretty much decide what we talk about for an entire episode's worth if he wants to. I'm very excited about that. You should consider one that Flame On could experience and discuss because people like us talking about crazy shit. It can be literally anything. Now and, and we will talk about it. I don't care what it is. Oh, if if I don't want to talk about it, I'll pass it off. To you. All right, that sounds good. I'll take your slot for <laughs> seconds. No we, we we do we do exercise certain. There 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 is a clause. There is a clause that says if we if it seems that somehow this is going to be harmful to something, we won't do it. But generally, I don't. I can't think of <laughs> Have a mic- ever exercise that clause. I don't think we've ever done it. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't. I can't recall of an instance that we've ever actually done that. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we we did we did an entire like three hour long episode about penises because our fans told us to. One of my favorites. Uh, So good. Uh, So this has been Moogfest, and I guess we have some closing thoughts to share about the the experience at large. We already mentioned that it should probably be a day shorter because these two days, I don't know, maybe it was a scheduling thing. Who knows? I enjoyed it a lot. This is a a huge step for Moogfest, very different programming. I don't know what you guys think about this, but I'm usually hesitant to suggest that an event that has Two different tracks split up their content. I've seen festivals go horribly wrong that way. Yeah. Um, however, it does succeed at South by Southwest, where they have their interactive part, their uh, their film part, and their music part. And they do have days that overlap, but yeah. they also, like, interactive starts, and it overlaps with film ever so slightly, and, and so on. And there's, there's overlap that aids them, but that way that the populaces who are interested in different things won't have to, I don't know... It helps condense things better. Right. I would personally suggest to Moogfest starting the weekdays with, you know, a morning to evening panel programming. Right. Including some, like, select artists who are more geared towards the science and technology people's listening habits, like maybe Keith Emerson or somebody, mm-hmm. or Craig Leon, people who are more associated with that track of people, right. having a day of overlap and then filling the weekend with, you know, for, so all the party people can come out. Yeah. yeah. And, and it'll be better balanced, you know, because, like... I'm up at 10 a.m. to see a keynote and then partying all night mm-hmm. and then wake up to see a keynote at 10 a.m. Yeah. And uh, we're all three of us. We're the demographic for this festival. Very much so. And and it, it, was, it was great, but it was also insane. Yeah. Like, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. And I think, I think you know, provided that, that this was a success for them, surely they'll do it again. And I, I hope that they uh, they look at new ways to explore doing more with this with this content and fleshing it out even further. Yeah. I really like the way they structured this, at least in the sense that it allowed us to explore their city. Because Asheville, if you've never been to Asheville, it is a beautiful, beautiful city. It is a it is like Oregon or a Portland, Oregon transferred to North Carolina. It is hippies, it is hipsters, it is live music on the street corner, it is science technology, it is everything. All of that in one cool little city. And I like, in some ways, that the festival gave us a little extra time on both sides because I think that was maybe, if I if I had to guess, their attempt to get people out into the city and have them walk around, which is what happened to me yeah. today. I mean, I went and shopped around and, and did and little touristy stuff. 
I would love next year or in the future to see artists like Wendy Carlos, uh, who to me if is... If they could pull her out of her hermitage, that would, would be amazing. I mean, in any way, shape, or form to honor what she did with Moog and, and all that legacy would be great. I would love to see more of a focus on the future of actual instrument technology, as we talked about. I would love to see more of an inclusion of 8-bit and chiptunes, because to me that is a very valid part of the space that was barely touched. Chiptunes people belong here. Absolutely. Uh, Matthew Applegate, a.k.a. Pixel Hate, should do electric Oh, my God. Pixel Hate, uh, Richard D. James, not that he's uh, 8-bit, but, you know, another great artist they could bring in. You've got Trent Reznor you could bring to this festival and and, and have a a valid thing. Bjork would be a, a huge... Huge uh, a net for this group, and I assume that the the ultimate get for the for the pop side of things would be holy Christ if they could ever get a contract with Daft Punk. Oh my God! I mean, obviously that's very expensive, but you book Daft Punk, and oh, it's got such great potential with the legacy of Bob Moog and with the approach to technology in the future and music. Like, there's such a great synthesis there that I'm I'm excited for what, especially that we think this year was fairly successful. Yeah. I don't think, other than maybe the first couple days where it was a little sluggish, I don't think that it wasn't well attended. Yeah. But I'm very excited about next year, and I hope that it just grows from what they have done. And we can think of, like, a ton of musicians and presenters who would be great here in the future. I mean, like, from everybody from, like, you know, uh, Afro-Celt, Sound System. Oh, fantastic. um, Angelus. Mark Isham or... Oh, yeah. um, There's so many performers uh, who are also creators who would be perfect additions to this. And also more more media presence, like people like David X. Cohen. I mean, granted, him and the, and the, the clan of the Futurama Simpsons writing team are a rare breed, yeah. but certainly, like, people from the video game, uh, like, industry yeah, would be great here. they didn't here. have a lot of that. They did have Google and MIT Media Lab, both great choices. Georgia Tech's got a great program. You know, Ray Kurtzfile would be great to oh have come God. out. I mean, if he just it, came out and shielded his uh, immortal elixir and talked about the singularity, people would love it. So. Yeah, he would be, like, the ultimate keynote for them. If they yeah. could get him. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Taking us out, we're going to have a little something from the uh, from Omni and King Brit, which we mentioned uh, you know earlier. Uh, King Brit has, has done a, a series, and I guess continues to do more in, in a series of uh, music inspired by Omni. And uh, this is from a collection he did called Omnipresent, A Different View. It's uh, Afrofuturist remixes. And this is an excerpt from his track, The Mind Knows. You can download all these tracks on his SoundCloud. We'll link to where you can do that on this episode's page. So uh, check it out. The stuff is great. And let us know what you think about MoogFest. If you have any questions about what we saw and did, if you have any thoughts of what they should do next, anything MoogFest related, hit us up in the comments on this episode's page. Maybe start a thread on the forums. Whatever you want to do. Speaking of the forums, um, we've had a great conversation going on about a previous episode where we did a dramatic reading of the fantasy book Heroes of Destiny. So if you haven't checked that out, check out the discussion on the on the forums. It's actually quite interesting. Um, but uh, this episode's gone on long enough. It's been it's been quite a journey for us. It's been almost like a one big day that blurred together. In fact, your podcast experience may be remarkably similar to this entire experience as we remember it. Yeah. We're going to get back to Orlando and realize that somehow we've lost a week. Yeah. Because it doesn't feel like it's been five days. No, it, it just doesn't. feels like I one... don't remember sleeping. <laughs> it, it seems like just this, uh, the same day. It was one abstract, really, continuum. really long day. We're like Jack Bauer. <laughs> One more important announcement, we've got two new shows coming to the Nerdy Show Network. Starting tomorrow, and coming up the last Tuesday of every month, is our all-new nerd music podcast, The Nerd Groove, hosted by Dr. Vern of Sci-Fried and Nerdy FM. And then, next week, on May 7th, 
is the debut of Bits, Rhymes, and Life, an insightful slice-of-life podcast series from the minds behind Forever Famicom, nerdcore rapper Megaran, and producer Kay Murdoch. So that starts Wednesday, May 7th, and you can look forward to it the first Wednesday of every month. Bye, I'm Cap. I'm Brian. I'm John. Here's King Grit. Thanks for listening to Nerdy Show. We mean that. As listener-supported entertainment, we rely on you to keep this and other shows on the Nerdy Show Network alive by telling a friend, rating and reviewing us on iTunes, shopping at nerdyshow.com store, or directly donating to the network. Any size contribution gets you exclusive Nerdy Show audio and images and lets you participate in our monthly support drives. Just go to nerdyshow.com support to chip in. To find out how you or your company can underwrite this or other Nerdy Show programming, visit nerdyshow.com slash sponsorships. For more episodes of Nerdy Show, as well as other fine programs, community forums, videos, articles, and more, head over to nerdyshow.com. You can subscribe to all Nerdy Show Network podcasts via the iTunes store. And for the latest news, follow us on all your favorite social networks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.